Wanna go, pretty boy? Two minutes by yourself and you feel shame, you know, and then you get free. The only thing better than a glass of beer is tea with Miss McGill. Oh. <laughs> And welcome to the 4th Line Voice Podcast. My name is Darren. Thank you very much for tuning in. Episode 305 of the big show, some enforcer-based podcasting coming at you. Brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. How's everybody doing out there? Another Wednesday, update Wednesday. Almost there, folks. Uh, almost there to the weekend. And uh, got a fun episode today. Myth-busting episode today. I have a, And I have brought in a couple uh, uh, co-hosts for this uh, for this event uh, Chris and John, um, they've been on the show before, um, and basically in today's episode, um, you know, even with you yeah, the fight, the fape, the Facebook, bleh, easy for you to say, the Facebook groups, message boards from back in the day, there's always been fight fan myths and just whatever you want to call it. They just, and, uh, you know, from McSorley Clark to, I don't know, uh, Chara and can Reeves hang in the eighties to, um, well, the new one. Now the fashionable thing is old Probert couldn't win without his Jersey coming off and, and all these things that we are going to tackle today. Gary Bettman is the cause of all this. Um, we're going to talk, and I've talked about these, these topics on various episodes. I've, I've yelled out the window about them. But I'm gonna I'm gonna bring in uh, Chris and John to talk about these as well. And they had a few things that they wanted to talk about. And uh, yeah, basically it's, that's just what we talk about the uh, the urban legends, the myths. You know, um, was Gordy Howe the toughest of all time? Well, and and obviously there are some things that you know our opinion. Who knows? Whatever you know, could Ryan Reeves hang in the eighties? Yeah, I mean. You know, without the without the use of a time machine, no one really knows. But uh, we're going to bring, I'd like to think, a common sense approach to this. Um, you know, we, we hey, we talk about guys that we don't like, but in a, uh, I, I don't know, we just, the, the, the fan homer goggles are taken off. You have three guys that, I, that are pretty well, you know, shooting down the middle here and uh, with no bias, just using video, common sense. And uh, and just being adults about the whole thing is basically what this episode is. Three guys talking. Um, you might not agree with us, and that's fine. If you don't, hey, I'd love to hear from you. Like I said, that my, I'm on social media, Facebook, Twitter. Drop me a line. That my DMs are open, as the kids say. And if you think that we're full of shit, I'm not saying we're not. But uh, we 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 approach this with no bias. We'll put it that way. And. Um, you know, and like I said, it's just a common sense approach at looking at things, and it's broken down that way. And you'll see as this episode goes on, and it's a long one, and we talk about a number of different things, and uh, yeah, so take the ride with us. 
So I'm not going to talk for too long today because we literally go for like two and a half hours. I was actually going to break this up into two parts, but then I was like, ah, screw it, whatever. Um, also, normally I like to have it out Wednesday morning, but uh, I went to upload it last Tuesday night and uh, we were having a lightning and thunderstorm here and uh, rainstorm and uh, our internet was not working. So uh, I didn't have a chance to upload it and uh, I was just like, I'm not waiting, I'm going to bed. So I... Uh, I got home from work, we ate supper, and this is the first opportunity I've had to upload the episode. So I apologize for being, uh, you know, uh, half a day late, but uh, we're here nonetheless. So um, I hope you guys enjoy it. I know we probably have, I probably have a number of first-time listeners to the show. Thank you. Welcome. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, if you do, I highly encourage you to check out the back catalog. As I said, 304 other episodes. Um, not only solo episodes, but I talked to fellow fight fans like I did with this episode. Or I've done player interviews. Steve McIntyre, Joey Tedarenko, John Morasti, um, Roman Volpat, Clark Wilm, uh, you know, on and on. Uh, I encourage you to go back in the back catalog and, and check it out. Um, you know, I'll put those player interviews up with anyone. I don't mean it in a bragging way, but um, I, I think you, you'll find that, you know, they're they're well-researched and, um, yeah, and we cover the player's whole career. So, and I think you'd enjoy it. So, uh, yeah, so I encourage you to uh, to check out the catalog, if you will. Uh, as I said, I'm, I'm on Twitter uh, as well as Facebook. Uh, also, Fourth Line Voice on YouTube. I have over 2,000 videos on the channel. Check it out. Subscribe to the channel. If you watch a video and you like it, hit the thumbs up button. YouTube loves that sort of thing. And whatever platform you happen to be listening to this show on, please, could you review the show? Or not just re- just rate it with the star rating because that also helps. And not only my show, but any podcast that you enjoy listening to. Um, yeah, there's that the rating on on iTunes and on Spotify and stuff. Yeah, just hit the star rating because it does help out the show. That's the a, a cheap and free and easy way that you can help out a content creator that you enjoy. And uh, other than that, uh, like I said, I'm gonna get out of here. Um, normally, I do the, a lot more of this, but Jolton Joel Lazito, Coliseum Chronicles, Alec at the Five for Fighting podcast. Check out their shows. They're also members of the Hockey Podcast Network, newest members of the Hockey Podcast Network. So please check out their stuff. They do a great job, and uh, I will certainly uh, um, talk more about them in the future. I'll have them on the. I've had them on the show before, and I will have them on the show again. So, but uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna shut up and let's upload this episode and get it out the door here for you guys to consume. So. Uh, thank you very much again for tuning in, and uh, here we go. Here's myself, Chris, and John talking about some of hockey fight fans' biggest myths. Enjoy, guys. We'll talk to you on Sunday. Thanks, everybody. All right, here on the fourth line, voice got a special show today with some special characters. Oh, some returning guests. I've uh, I have uh, Chris. And John are returning to the show, and we're gonna we're gonna attack we're gonna attack here. Uh, 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 well, I guess not attack. What are we gonna do? We're gonna debate. Well, I don't even know if we're gonna debate. We might. I think we all actually are on the same page. Look at this. I just recruit like-minded individuals, but uh, we're gonna talk about hockey myths amongst fight fans. And uh, but before we get going, uh, John, how you doing today? I'm doing good, Darren. Nice to be uh, here with you and Chris. There, there you go. Back again, and uh, yeah, we're gonna uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll see what's uh, what we uh, get into here. But Chris, how are you doing today? 
Oh, I'm doing great. Enjoying my day off, and I'm looking forward to this uh, show with you two gents. Uh, going to shed the light on a few of those myths that have been floating around for a while. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, we're off to a hot start because I completely butchered that intro. I had a whole thing I was going to say, and I completely just went dead as soon as I hit record. So, but hey, we're gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving that in because that's the kind of show that I got here. So, um, but we had to, you and, well, the three of us had talked about this for the last little while that we were, I wanted to do this show. And I said, well, I'm going to put it out on the Facebook group. Cause we each had our own ideas, but it was like, you know, I'll throw it out to the, to the folks in these groups. And I mean, maybe they'll, you know, they'll come up with a few different things that we hadn't thought of. And, you know, and, um, there were certainly a lot of comments. Um, and as I'm sort of, as I'm talking here, I'm kind of just scrolling through it. Um, yeah, I mean, some of them, it, I did laugh at the one guy, the guy who lands on top wins. I actually never thought of that, but that's like completely true. That sounds like every announcer ever, but, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah um, you know, and it was, I got a bunch of comments like that, but it was more like, um, I, I think today that we're going to talk about, um, like different things with the jersey coming off and maybe the code and Probert and Ray and all that stuff. We'll, we'll talk about that stuff that I've, I've touched on before on this, but I'd like to have other people's points of view on this as well. So I think at the first one here that we're going to start seeing as it's playoff time, and this is one of the uh, fame, one of the more famous playoff fights, um, of, is of course the famous Wendell Clark, Marty McSorley playoff battle. And, um, you talk to anybody these days and almost unanimously, it's all oh, Wendell kicked his ass. And, uh, you know, and again, that might be because it's Leaf Nation saying this, but numerous times on all these fight groups and the two and all of us have been on fried chicken and hockeyfights.com and dropped your gloves and all the message boards um, going back in the day. And it was always pretty well, even amongst hardcore fight fans that Wendell whipped on them. But, uh, I'm going to start with John. John, what are your what's your take on the whole Clark McSorley boat? I I would say if you just listen to the announcers and watch the first five seconds, then yeah, you can say Clark won the fight and you know cleaned up on McSorley. But that's just simply <laughs> the fight lasted a lot longer than that, and you really had like it, it kind of goes even to something that's always bothered me uh, in the hockey fight world was like I think people just kind of look at the fight rather than watch it they're not actually paying attention to what's going on because yeah you watch it or if you're just kind of casually looking yeah you see Clark is hammering McSorley and the camera's right on McSorley and you see his face and you see him getting locked and staggering back and yeah like Clark is landing and he's landing hard but it's not like and that's what the announcers are screaming about because, you know, they're in Toronto and so they have those glasses filtering everything they're seeing. But it's not like McSorley was just standing there and getting licked and not doing anything. He's throwing back just as well of his own. And, in fact, his punches seem to have a lot more of an effect on Clark than Clark's punches had on McSorley. Like, Clark ends up, he gets his helmet knocked off and right after he takes a couple, you know, he puts his head down, he just starts hanging on, 
And the camera kind of goes away, I think, to the other fight that was going on. I think it was uh, Todd Gill and Dave Taylor were scrapping too. But when it goes back, you can see McSorley and Clark, and Clark's just hanging on the whole time. And McSorley's just throwing steadily. He doesn't, you know, he's not laying up on him on Clark at all. And he's landing punches, and it goes on for another 20, 30 seconds, I think, at least. And, I mean, that's, that's the fight. And, you know, if you want to say, oh, Clark landed, you know, the two or three best punches of the fight early on, yeah, you can say that. But that's not all that happened. And I don't think that means he wins the fight, especially when Marty landed punches at the exact same time, too. And it looks like his punches did a lot more to Clark than Clark's did to him. You know, I don't know. Uh, Chris, what did you what do you uh, think about that? Pretty much along the same lines. Uh, it seems like a lot of folks, you know, are, are friends in Leaf Nation. They just love those first five seconds of the fight when Clark is just pasting Marty. Uh, man, those first three punches give Clark credit. Of course, those are bombs that he is hitting McSorley with. But at the same time, you got to give credit to McSorley's toughness, the fact that he just stood in there and took those shots, stayed on his feet and stayed in it is definitely a testament to Marty's toughness. But then look what happened uh, for the next, you know, minute and 20 seconds or, or however much longer that lasted. It was really all Marty. Clark was gassed. He was hanging on. He was pretty much done. And it's not as if all those punches Marty landed didn't count which is, I swear, what the, you know, our, our Leaf friends think. It's like they, ah, yeah. those punches, they don't really mean anything. You know why? Because look at McSorley's eye. They love the black eye. There was something to point at, something to see, visible damage on Marty's face with the black eye. Whereas mm-hmm. Wendell wasn't really leaking. He wasn't welted up or bruised up. But those punches from Hardy were no joke. He was uh, cranking Clark with a lot of them. There was one uppercut that looked like it stunned Clark. He kind of bent over, looking like he was tired and just trying to put an end to this fight, and Marty straightened him out with an uppercut. I mean, that was just as good a punch as the ones that uh, Wendell got him with. But, you know, to Mm -hmm. me, I think overall – just the sheer volume, the sheer number of punches that connected, you know, I give the edge to Marty. You know, I oh, yeah. I won't say that Marty destroyed Wendell, but on the other hand, the myth that we're addressing, Wendell sure didn't destroy Marty either. So it's just I take no. it for what it is. One hell of a great playoff fight. All the passion and the hate and the heat of a of a an awesome playoff series between two really good teams. And man, it was just a, a classic moment of nineties hockey, but it was not a win for Wendell Clark. So that's, that's the men. No. Yeah. And I think with that fight, I think what people get hung up on, I, I, I again, I, I guess it's the theatrics of it and the optics like Marty's coming off the ice and he hits the camera cause he's bleeding and whatever. And Oh, you see, you know, and all that. It's like, 
and it's it's the big stage and the event that it was on, and you know, I I guess um, th- that probably has a lot playing into it as well. Um, yeah. But uh, well, I did laugh at the one guy here. Oh, well, Marty! Marty had to get out of all this stuff. That was the only way he was ever effective. Like, oh, oh. Uh, okay. You know, it's just like, yeah. Well, because I've never seen Marty take three down the pipe like that before from anyone. I'm like, well. Wendell kind of jumped him. Not that he should, they shouldn't have, because I mean, Mark yeah. Sorley hit Gilmore up high, so Wendell's got to come in. You know, it's not a, you know, let's have a square off now here. No, I mean, I get why Wendell grabbed him, because he's supposed to, and he's firing away before Marty's, you know, before they even really, Marty's squared up, you know, and so it's like, well, that's why McSorley took the three down the pipe. It's like, you know, uh, so I, I'm like, I don't know what that means because Marty took three down the pipe. It's like, okay, I. It's always funny in any of this when you do these myths or this topic comes up. It, it all of a sudden everything just starts like getting away from the fight, and then it becomes Marty was never really that good because he came out of his jersey, and that makes Wendell better because he he relied on his ability. He didn't use gimmicks. To quote this guy, I'm like gimmicks. Oh, okay, well, to come out of your well, okay. I guess this will lead into our Jersey topic. Why not, right? I mean, it it um, mm. you know, it, oh, it's like you, it's like you planned this segue. Well yeah, done. Look at that. It's exactly. It's almost like I've done this before. Maybe segue, <laughs> but uh, and ranted about this. <laughs> but like I said to this guy when he's talking about, oh, McSorley had the advantage, and then Ray and Probert and. I mean, that's the big one now. That's the big knock on Probert and Ray all the time when someone wants to shit on their legacy, I guess, is the Jersey thing. But, they always, oh, it's a huge advantage for them. I always say to them, well, you guys, you're using the term advantage like the other guy couldn't do it too. Yeah. Like only Probert was allowed to yeah. get out of his Jersey. The guy he was fighting wasn't allowed to. It's like, that's the way you're wording it. Yeah, but that's not what I mean. Yeah, but that's the way you're wording it. Like, it's not. It was. It wasn't a secret that Probert was going to try to get out of it, and it wasn't a secret that Ray was going to. So again, it's not like they threw this a curveball at you mid-fight. I mean, you knew this shit was all going down. Be- hell, before you even played the game, if you were going to fight him, this could possibly happen. So stop using the word advantage. Like they're the only. Like there's nothing stopping anyone else from doing that. You know, I mean, really. I know some guys, when you talk to them, that I've had on the show, they didn't like their jersey coming off. They like to have it tied down and stuff like that. Even when they, you know, so it all, or some guys like the bigger sleeve or like Dave Brown, tight sleeve. I mean, there's all types of shit that went on. It wasn't just, oh, the jersey came mm-hmm. off. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I know, well, you're a, you're a Buffalo guy. You're a Ray guy. Uh, Chris, so I'll start with you on this one. The whole jersey thing. And that was the only reason they were good is because their jersey came off. Yeah, that's uh, the big myth was the one I, I hear the most frequently is Ray never won any fight after he had to have the jersey tied down. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like you people are killing me. I'm like, this is so easily disproved by just watching the freaking video. He won plenty of fights after 1996. That's when the rule went into effect. It was summer of 96. 
And uh, I'll tell you the truth. You know, back then, I thought that 96-97 season, I was thinking Ray was going to get killed. So did I. I thought, ooh, like, boy, you know, that's like one of his main things that he does. I'm thinking that he's going to not be in the league much longer. But, boy, he proved me wrong, and he proved a whole lot of other people wrong because he continued to have a pretty solid career for another, what, six, seven seasons after that rule went into effect. Um, I think basically Ray found out that the jersey-losing tactic was a crutch that he no longer needed. It wasn't until he was forced to keep it down that it was truly revealed that Ray didn't need to do that anymore. He had to in the beginning. His first few seasons, he just wasn't that good a fighter, and you know he needed to employ whatever trick he could to stay in these fights with these heavyweights that he was taking on. But he just got better and better as time went on, just became a better puncher, just a more adroit fighter. And it wasn't until he was forced to keep it on, oh, he doesn't really need to lose the jersey anyways because he continued to be just as good as he had become. You know, right around 94, 95, that's when Ray really, uh, well, he got his shit together. He just became a really effective, good fighter. And uh, the proof is in the pudding. When the Jersey rule came into effect, 96-97 season, we can just look at that. Um, He had some big wins. He defeated Cairns, Odgers, Webb, uh, Chase. He had some strong showings, if not wins, against Domi, Brashear, King, LaRue, Grinson. Uh, he had a fight of the year candidate fight with uh, Chris Murray. And sure, he, you know, he lost his share, but they weren't horrific beatings like everyone thought he was going to take. And it really continued that way for the rest of Ray's career. So... The Jersey tactic, or rather being denied the Jersey tactic, was not a big problem for Ray. And to tackle that myth head-on, oh, he never won fights after keeping the Jersey on. Well, I think some guys like Webb and Morissette and Bonvi and Patrick Cote and Hodgers and Stock and Todd Fedoric would probably tell you different. Those are all guys that took some big losses at the hands of Ray. So, yes, he won mm-hmm. plenty of fights after 1996, and that's so easily disproved by just watching the damn video. So, that's my take on it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing about that is, like... <laughs> It's also really easy. You mentioned it came in, that rule came into effect in the summer of 96. And it's, it's actually really easy. Like, if you're watching Ray and he's wearing blue and gold, then yep. you, you know, the jersey could come off and there was nothing. But when the Sabres went to that old black and red with the goat head look, like the way the jersey stayed on. And like you said, like he, 
Well, he didn't change much for him. Like, he kind of, like, once he hit that level, like you mentioned in, uh, you know, 94-ish, like, he basically stayed fighting around the same rate, same types of wins, same types of losses, you know. And I think the thing is, like, he didn't, he wasn't like he was, you know, a killer just because he could get out of the jersey. You know, like, he, he still won some, he still lost some. Like, he wasn't like he was the greatest fighter in the league at that time. He was good, there's no question, but when the jersey was forced to stay on, it's not like he took some, you know, massive step back as a fighter. In fact, some of his, you know, some of the more memorable fights he had, some of the more memorable wins he had, you know, like you mentioned, drilling Webb. He got Webb twice, actually. He dropped Morissette, Bonvi, Cote, the dork, um, beat Rodgers a few times. Like, yeah, those all happened with the jersey on. Yeah, well, I I yep. think yeah, and I think what happened is especially with like you said in the summer of '96. Well, that that's also entering kind of like Ray's kind of getting into his prime in terms of his age and the time he's been in the league and is right around that time too. So it's like he cut he was definitely hitting his stride right then, and I think um, you know, and there was no denying his his punching power, and it was like, we brought this up, I, I think Alec and I were talking about this, I mean, and rightfully so, I mean, people always talk about Koser and, and Twist and that type of thing in terms of punching power, but Ray never gets talked about, but it's like, if you go back and, and look through it, I mean, there's like a nine-minute YouTube video of Ray dropping guys, I mean, yeah. Ray dropped more guys than I think Koser did. I think we added it up one time. I think he actually did have more knockdowns than Koser, you know. And I mean, yeah. and, and it's like now, you know, uh, having never fought these people, I don't know who hit harder. I can't tell. I can't say that. But clearly, <laughs> from the results, um, not only could Koser smash people, but clearly Ray could too. And like you said, and then as as the video goes, the eight minute, nine minute video. I think there's like 12 knockdowns on there while 10 of them are with his jersey on. So Yeah, it was about half. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, like, well, that just disproves everything you're saying right there. You know, it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, I clearly thought Ray was better with his jersey on. You know. And, and it's, not like, it's not like when he was able to get the jersey off and, you know, those early 90s coming up. It's not like that was the only way he ever won. I know there's, you know, there are a few notable fights like the Kite KO where, you know, the jersey came off. But, you know, people don't mention the fact that, you know, when he, you know, rocked Dave Brown in that one fight, it was Brown who got out of his jersey. Ray stayed on. And, his came know, off too. That was Midway probably the biggest through. win of his career. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Dennis Vial slugfest that ended with Biel getting all bloodied up and dropped. Uh, mm-hmm. Ray could have taken off the, the first... blue and gold era, but it stayed on. You know, so yeah. there, there was, uh, it wasn't yeah. like yeah. in the blue and gold era, every Ray fight ended up with him half naked. You know, sometimes yeah. it stayed on. He didn't take it off every single time, like some people no. took it out to be. Um you brought up, John, something interesting. That's a great uh, way to look at it. If Ray had on the blue and gold, he was able to lose the jersey. The red and black era of the Sabres, 
just happened to coincide with that rule change with the tie down rule yeah. went into it went into effect so um that's like a really good way to gauge yeah an easy way to know what era this is yeah post tie down or pre tie down is just the color of Ray's gear yeah the time period yeah well the thing that like and it's funny, well, and then you get into the Probert, oh, Probert lost his jersey too. Yeah, yeah, like the one thing I always say with the Probert thing, that's complete, like Ray was naked. So that would be impossible to fight him at that point when he's naked, or very hard. Probert still had an undershirt on, so you still had something to grab onto. Now, granted, it's not as mm-hmm. thick or anything else, but you could still control him a little bit, because there's still something yeah. to grab. Whereas Ray's completely nude so it's like yeah i mean that's a, a different level as far as the jersey coming off but it even better uh what ray did his shoulder pads he had them sewn into the sweater yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah I mean, he really uh, went far as far as doctoring the jersey he definitely did a, a few creative things oh hey yeah well and that was the thing and like and that's Listen, I've always said too, like when these guys were fighting back then, I mean, I think fans, especially maybe now more so than ever, uh, they, they almost view the fights like they were like an individual event. Like it was like some sort of boxing match and these were the rules and he broke the rules by coming out of his Jersey. It's like motherfucker. It wasn't about rules and codes. And so a bunch of nerds 30 years later could get on a podcast and debate this. These guys were there to kick the shit out of people and enforce and be bullies. I mean, that's bottom line. That's what they were. And they were there to fucking hurt people. I mean, I know people don't like to think that. Oh no, it's an, an honorable bout between two gentlemen. Like, no, it was, they were there. Like Ray was coming out of his Jersey to knock the holy shit out of you. That's why. It, it, he, do you think he yep. cared 30 years later that a bunch of people... That's the only reason he was good. He doesn't... That, that's not what it was about. It was about hurting people. I don't know what it's about now, but back then, that's what it used to be about. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, back then, he was trying to hurt the other team. He was trying to boost his team. Yeah. And it was about survival. Yeah. You know, uh against some of the most dangerous fighters in the league. It's about survival, and, and let's face it, there's a lot of money on the line for them, too. Their careers yeah. are on the So, of course, you know, any tactic or, or ploy or trick that they can uh, use, they're going to do it to help yeah. them win their fights. And, and, you know, do you think they, yeah, they don't care about the chivalry part of things. Uh, again, uh, maybe some fans really care about that, but ultimately when they're on the ice and doing their job, it's, uh, being successful at their job is really all they're thinking about and all that matters. Yeah. Like if, if Ray's keeping his Jersey on when he's a rookie in early years and he's getting beat up, well, he's, first of all, he's going to be back in Rochester before his head can spin and yeah. they'll find, and back then They'll find someone else, and you're riding the bus for the rest of you. Because there's a lot of tough dudes in the American League that never made the NHL that could have, but it was hey, it was there was lots back then, and you had to make the most of when you were there. And if coming out of his jersey not only 
physically gave him an advantage, but psychologically, I mean, back then, you'll take any advantage that you can get. And if that helped him mentally as well as fight-wise to come out of it, well, then, guess what? I'm coming out of it. And I'm not really too concerned about what a bunch of fans think 30 years later. I mean, you know. Now, if if there's a rule against it and you're coming out of it, well, okay, then that's a different story. But there was nothing against it at the time. Well, there you go. I mean, you gotta, yeah, yeah, and I think I think people lose sight of that. Like, it's like the whole like the oh Dave Brown jump people. Yeah, and so so what? <laughs> I mean, that was the point. Like, it's yeah, he was there to enforce and to inflict damage on people, and he's he wasn't really too concerned about Marcus of Queensberry and being fairsies. <laughs> It's like, no, I'm like, cause he's mean. That was the point that used to be the point of all this. It wasn't the yeah, George LaRock. Good luck, bro. Like, what are we doing? Like, yeah. like, well, <laughs> see, I'm, see, I'm trying to transition into the Dave Brown thing now. See, Chris, see what I'm doing here? John, what do you think about the whole Brown was only good cause he jumped people? Uh, uh that's a pretty, pretty bad take to be honest it's just Dave Brown's one of those guys like I mean he's one of the best of all time clearly and he won he didn't win fights because he jumped people he won fights because he was a really good fighter and he was mean and he flew with bad intentions and I mean and like you said the the whole job was enforcing, especially back when Brown played in that era. You know, it was a lot more to do about, you know, intimidating the other team, about standing up for your guys no matter what. It wasn't this whole, you know, as the game transitioned in the 90s, early 2000s, like, it, it came those sort of, it took on like this new life of, Appointment fights, and you know, like you said, the George Rock, good luck, bro. We're all on, we're all kind of in this together. It's a fraternity of us, you know, heavyweights. That wasn't the case when Brown was playing in the 80s and early 90s. Like, they were there to hurt people, they were there to enforce. And, you know, like him or hate him, Brown did that as well as anybody. And, you know, the idea that he, he only won guys because. He only won because he jumped guys. It's just, I, 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 it's kind of one of the things. Like I don't even have the patience to like <laughs> to do all of his fights to debunk. Like he, uh, there's so many. Like where do you start? Like, yeah. Well, John, I actually did look through all of his fights sort of recently, uh, a few months ago, uh, in the early fall. Oh, that's right, you did. Yeah, I, I remember this time. post. Yes. I actually popped in some old uh, Dave Brown fight tapes and I watched everything. You know, these are fights I hadn't seen in a lot of years. And uh, so I popped in the old Dave Brown volume one tape made by uh, Robbie Wachtel, who was one of the great tape makers from back in the day. And thought, you know what, I'm going to see all these fights and see what, what happens in these fights. And this is what I found out. Yeah, he did do some jumping here and there. Make no mistake. But in reality, most of his fight was erupting out of the physical play. 
it wasn't, uh, I don't want to say like pre-staged fights, but, you know, what it became later on in the 90s where, you know, tough guy against tough guy at a face-off and they square off after a draw. There wasn't a lot of that in 1980s Brown. Really, it was uh, him causing chaos in front of the opposing team's net and nasty hits. That's where most of Brown's fights came from. wasn't showdowns off the draw. And, you know, seldom did Brown fight someone off a face-off. You know, usually it's him causing the mayhem in front of the net, bumping the goalie, daring opposing defensemen to move him. And I noticed that he had quite a few fights with tough defensemen. Uh, Scott Stevens, Tendanico, Jay Wells, Craig Wolan, and uh, Terry Karkner. Um, yeah, that's what I, I tended to see with Brown was fights born out of the physical play. And Brown didn't discriminate. Didn't matter if you were the tough guy, if you were the agitator, if you were the rugged defenseman, or if you were the superstar. He plainly didn't give a fuck. If you got in his face, he would try to break yours. He didn't care. You know, Mm -hmm. he would beat the hell out of anyone. But the one thing I noticed, he didn't really do like an outright sneak attack or, you know, a blindside sucker punch. What I noticed is he would be looking right at his intended victim. He was just not giving them a choice to fight or not. He wasn't giving anyone a chance to run away. Whether they were willing to fight or not, they're going to go. That's what I kind of noticed with Dave Brown. So, People think, oh, that's all he did was just mud people, these unsuspecting victims. He was just blindside attacking them, and that's the only reason he was good. No, it's not that. He was just uh, old-school mentality and ruthless. Guys yeah. knew he was coming. He's just mm-hmm. not giving them a chance to back out of it. He wanted to fight, and he wanted to do some damage to someone. Oh, it's happening. You know, really, out of watching all the fights, the only times I would say that he blatantly jumped someone, he did that to McSorley when they were, when McSorley was with Pittsburgh. And he did that to Jay Miller once. Miller and Brown, I think, had about, I think, like 11 fights. And only one of them did Brown outright mug him, you know, off a a face-off. So... Yeah, it happened, brown jumping people, but it didn't happen nearly with the frequency that some of the misbelievers would have you think. It's just not true. Mm -hmm. And again, you just look at the video and see what happened, and the truth is right there for you to see. And even even in fights where, you know, you say brown got the jump on a guy or started a little quicker than the other, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's why he wins the fight. I mean, I just pulled up his card right now, and I, I didn't go down the Dave Brown rabbit hole like you, Chris, but, you know, you see some of the guys he beat, Jim Kite, Chris Nyland, Don Jackson, Jay Wells, uh, Jay Miller, you know, a few times. 
Steven, Danico, Tim Hunter. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Kirkner, uh, Caulfield, well, I mean, Caulfield wasn't a great fighter. Brian Curran. Like, you get all these guys. It's like, I'm pretty sure those fights weren't all won in the first, you know, five seconds when Brown gets to jump on a guy. I mean, I know, like, you know, you get tagged with a couple early on. Maybe you don't really have much of a shot to, you know, get back into it. But, you know, just because you get the gloves off quicker than the other guy, and you know, maybe you get the first few in, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that's why you win the fight. And, you know, all the guys that Brown dropped too, well, those fights ended on the last punch, not the first. You know, you look at what he did to their, uh, Jeff Parker or Cam Russell, Sean Cronin one time, Jimmy, Jim McKenzie. Like, just because Brown started fast or, you know, I can't, I can't tell you off the top of my head if he did in those fights or not. He didn't win because of that. He won because, you know, he threw with too hard and those guys took one and they went down. So, yep, yep. I was going to say, um, just while I'm thinking about John, uh, how, uh, were you ever on fried chicken? Were you a member of that? I never was on fried chicken. I remember, I kind of like looked at it and, you know, you know, certainly read some stuff on there, but by the time I kind of discovered, like I kind of got into this fight game pretty late. Like it was probably around like the mid two thousands. I'm, just practice that. I'm quite a bit younger than I think you two guys. I'm only, I'm 32 now. So. 32. Well, I can't even remember back that far. 32. <laughs> yeah. It was all, yeah. So I was like in high school. I really. That's when I really started, you know, getting interested in this. And it, and by that time, fried chicken seemed, you know, I'd go, I'd go there and you know I'd read some stuff and you know I'd go back another couple months. And not much really changed. So I think at that point it would kind of you know, lost a bit of momentum or yeah. whatever. And it didn't seem to have. And you kind of moved uh, to the, the hockeyfights.com kind of message board. Yeah. And, and hockey fights, I, there was something about it that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Now I can't stand it. And I, I kind of just stuck with uh, Drop Your Love and that was my lane. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I was I was going to say, but, and Chris, you're, you're an LFC guy too, so I mean, you'll know what I mean. But just the message boards in general, we'll even drop your gloves and stuff. Cause this, all this shit, like I said, I was on fried chicken like in 90, like when it came out, 98, when it was all just one thread and the internet was first getting going and all that. Um, to go back to the topics that we were just talking about here, I don't remember guys on these sites crying about Ray coming out of his jersey or Dave Brown jumping guys. I don't remember that. I'd like, or Probert coming out of his jersey. Like, I don't remember people complaining about that. I mean. Yeah, no, I don't. Like, I mean, Again, there might have been one guy that all, oh, a Brown guy that didn't, like, maybe he was a Miller guy. So, oh, Dave jumped him that time. I mean, you'd have that now and again. Oh, he jumped him in this fight. But it was never some massive thread. Like, Dave Brown really wasn't that good because he just jumped people. Like, there, I don't remember that anybody ever saying that. Am I up my ass? Like, do you remember any of this? No, I, I really don't. Um, I, I think we discussed this before we started recording um the great things about drop your gloves and fried chicken especially is homers and you know real blind biased maniacs they tended to weed themselves out 
of that group pretty quickly. <laughs> they would get pretty much pointed out, oh, you're a homer, you're an idiot. They would be ostracized pretty quickly and be gone. So those sites especially, it was great if you're a hockey fight fan because, you know, you pretty much had, for the most part, middle of the road good commentary from people who knew what they were talking about. And, you know, the the myth believers and wackos would be gone in pretty short order. There was exceptions, of course, who we can name. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, those people just didn't last on drop your gloves or fried chicken. And, uh, man, when those sites went down, that was just such a loss such a grievous loss of hockey fight knowledge and history. And, you know, people like us who know what we're talking about, man, we lost our forum when those fights Mm -hmm. went down. And, you know, a lot of us kind of dispersed and went elsewhere. You know, in recent years, a lot of us have kind of come back due to Alex Page and Forcer Appreciation and William Chippeway's page, Hockey Fights and Brawls. But unfortunately, for every smart commentator like us, there's like five or six complete nitwits that are on those pages. And it's like, oh, man, the loss of those uh, two websites, man, it was tough to take. And, you know, we're still feeling it. The effect of those losses, we're still feeling that today. And uh, hence, the reason we're doing this episode, because the myths (laughs) have just gained more and more momentum and strength as the years have gone by. And there's like no forum, no collection of knowledgeable posters and commentators to kind of put these whack jobs in their place. Well, I think the thing that always kind of get, well... I think the problem with a lot of this Facebook stuff too, as I said, you got younger people, like even younger than old uh, Spring Chicken uh, uh, John here, um, but they, they grew up in the era, like in the two thousands, so they don't they don't know any better anyway, because that's not the hockey they they have they have no understanding. Like if you have some kid that was born in uh, whatever two thousand or two thousand and five, and they're in their late teens, early twenties. They never saw hockey in the eighties and not it would they have no understanding. It looks like Thunderdome compared to what they're watching now. And it's like and they so they but they try to attribute today's mindset about fighting, because that's all they know, to like when they watch nineties hockey, so there are eighties hockey, so then it's this guy's dirty, that guy cheated, this guy did whatever, and it's like you have no that was not even a thought back then. Like you're trying to put 2023 rules into watching as you're watching a, the 1987 NHL season. It's like you can't do that. It's completely different. And like the mindset yeah. wasn't there. And it's just like, so this goes to this. Well, and I mean, I've seen, I've seen player, even now I've seen ex players talk about the code. And I've talked, and I, which I, I'm like, I don't know if you're trying to, Fool yourself into thinking that what I like, I don't know what, what this whole code thing is. I, all my life in hockey, around hockey, everything, I never heard anyone ever say the code. I never heard that phrase. 
until about the mid-2000s when that guy wrote the book. That was the first time yeah. I'd ever heard about it. Other than that, it's like, and I'm watching all these old fights, and it's like, I don't know what the fuck you guys are talking about, the code. What is this? And this is all, like, new shit. Mm -hmm. Like, this is all post-2005, I guess, when I always call it the Code Fighters started. And it's just like, well, even, like, on my comment about it, Mike Segroy, tough bastard for sure, He's like, the code never existed until one, maybe two generations of players ago. That's Mike Segroy saying that. And then somebody asked him about the code. And then, like Segroy said, there is no code. Unless you fight someone multiple times, there should be no respect. That's Segroy saying yeah. that. You know? I did see that. Did yeah. See that. So it's like, um, and, you know, like another I, player who, like Brian McGratton, I've heard him say, oh, there's no such thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, where mm -hmm. and on the other hand, there's like been a player or two who said, Oh, yeah, there, there is a code, kind of. Oh, Steve, Steve McIntyre, Steve McIntyre, and I had a big argument about this online, you know, and he was fucking hot at me, you know, and I'm just like, But I'm like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you might have. I, I guess I don't like, but I've seen a lot of your stuff when you broke the code. Like, so I don't know. I, I don't know. It's just, you know, we're, we're, Steve and I are all good now, but he wasn't real happy with me that day. But, but yeah, like you said, yeah, McGratton said there was no code. I remember Matt Barnaby tweeting about it. He's like, the code's right up there with the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus, you know? <laughs> and then, of course, oh, that's because it's Barnaby. Well, I, I always laugh at, I'm going off on a tangent here, but like with Barnaby, the, everybody goes on and on about, oh, how dirty and everything. Barnaby, when was Barnaby dirty? He was an asshole, but I don't he remember him. Oh, he was, a, he was like, he'd nit, nitpick at you and jab you, but I don't remember yeah. Barnaby clubbing people over the head with a stick or anything. When was he, or kneeing people? Like when, when was he? Nope. You, you're the Buffalo guy. It was I don't even remember him being suspended, was he? Like no, no. He was uh, if what he got it? suspension, it was maybe from accruing too many game misconduct. Yeah, yeah. Which he got uh, his share of. But as far as a guy who hit people from behind, took out knees, or had flagrant stick fouls, that wasn't Barnaby's game. He was a guy who would verbally drive people nuts. And, you know, he would just be, he would have an irritating style of play. He wasn't dirty. <laughs> he wasn't injuring people with cheap shots. No, no. So I, I no. just I just laugh when he mentioned the code. And then, of course, all the people underneath. Oh, yeah. Typical goon reply. It's like, oh, okay. I'm like, hey, he played how many, you know. I always laugh at these people that, like, oh, but he's a goon. Well, he played 800 NHL games. Yeah, but he was a goon. Oh, okay. Like, we're just going to dismiss the fact that he played 800 NHL games. Yeah, what the fuck would he know about anything? It's like, oh, come on. Like, just... Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and that's the other thing I'm seeing a lot of cropping up on uh, uh, the Facebook pages, especially, is just the casual use of the, the goon word. You know, like, just, just shut up. And, oh, he was a goon. He didn't know how to play the game. Like, are you, are you sure about that? I don't think so. And, they, you know, they're applying it to 
to fighters who are actually pretty decent players. I've seen that goon word applied to McSorley and, and Ty Domi, for instance. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Not the case at all. If you would just, you know, just look at the statistics of the guys. Played over a thousand games and had some pretty respectable numbers while carrying out the role of a uh, frequent fighter. They were not goons, you know? Uh, just drives me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. The, the guys who came up fighting in the 80s and 90s, like, they... It was a lot of different league back then, too. Like, you know, subtract 10 teams or whatever to expansion, talent pool was a lot smaller. And, yeah, obviously there was... It was a bigger part of the game and teams valued having that that toughness quotient, you know, spoken for, but, you know, guys could play. Like, they weren't they weren't just uh, out there doing nothing. Like, they forgot what the puck was for. Like, yeah. you know. Oh, speaking of uh, guys that could play in the 80s, you know, another guy who frequently gets slapped with the goon label is the guy we just talked about, Dave Brown. But in reality, you know, watching that old 80s footage – and looking at statistics, he had a few pretty good seasons when Mike Keenan was his coach because Keenan actually gave him a regular shift. And there was a, mm-hmm. a three-season span under Keenan where he had, uh, I think, 29 goals, which is not bad for a dude who's primarily a, a headbreaker. In fact, uh, uh, Chris Nyland got uh, a YouTube channel where he's been doing interviews. He interviewed Brown recently, and Brown himself mentioned that. Oh, I, he loved playing under Keenan. He actually used me for a regular shift, and I actually contributed with some offense. And, you know, I, I was used often at the end of games to, you know, protect the lead and make sure no funny business happened if the other team was bitter about losing badly. Um so, yeah, those guys in the 80s, they could play, too. They had skill as well. Oh, yeah, and I think that, that always gets overlooked. I mean, you go back, and especially you look in junior. I mean, Bruby had 30-goal season. Kimball had a 30-goal season. You know, like, Ty Domi led the Peterborough Pizza scoring in a Memorial Cup tournament. Like, you know, or in the OHL playoffs. It, it's not like these guys were just... That that whole nuclear weapon Bugard McIntyre era that didn't happen until the late '90s when it became, you know, the two shift the period guy, you know. And I'm not knocking Colton or any of those guys that played. That was the era. That's what was. That was the in vogue thing at the time. You know, that's just the way it was. Now you can argue if that's right or wrong, whatever. But that's the way it was. But in the '80s and '90s and stuff, like like there's Scott Parker. Oh, he was a goon. Well, Scott Parker scored 30 goals in his last year in Kelowna. Like, you know, and he scored, mm-hmm. what did he score? 14 in the in Hershey in his first year in the American League. Like, oh, 14 goals. Oh, uh. well, well, do you think he's getting power play time or anything? Like, no, the most likely we're probably five on five. So it's like, and on limited ice time. Like, he's not getting first time minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's like, no, and the same thing. I think Dave Brown had a 20 goal season in the American League. So it's like, yeah, these guys could all play. Like, so, but I like people like they, what are you comparing them to first line guys? Well, no, I no. mean, but I mean, in, in junior, yeah, like these guys played all the time and 
So it's like, no, they had an idea, but once they got to the NHL, you get, at that time, you got put in that position, and hey, shit, if you didn't want to do it, we'll find someone else that will. So, you know, but... If, given that choice, they're going to do what they got to do to stick. And uh, if fighting is like the biggest tool in their toolbox, that's what they're going to do. That's what they're going to yeah. use. Yeah. yeah and, and arguing reverse, like when you, when you got to that, that super heavyweight era where guys, you know, played three shifts in the first, two shifts in the second, and none in the third. It's like, oh, well, you, I think Scott Parker mentioned it in the interview. He's like, you give Joe Sackett, you know, five shifts a game and see how much you notice him. Like, exactly. you, argue, you know, you can argue with back the other way. Like, you're not going to be able to do much. So if you're like, hey, I only got two minutes of ice time to make a to make an impression, to get noticed, well, I know what I'm here for. And like you guys said, like, if I don't want to do it, I'll find someone else who can. So, yeah, I'm going to grab Jody Shelley or grab Olawa and we're going to go. And that's the end of my night. I, I can't control that. That's on the coach. But, I'm, you know, if you're Scott Parker, what, what else are you supposed to do? You can't – you're not getting, given the opportunity to showcase more. And, you know, it's, it's tough to be noticeable when you're only getting, you know – five shifts a game or whatever it was. And that's yeah. true for, you know, a lot of guys who are in that position. And... Yeah, and I, yeah. And I think what happened with a lot, and I think that was also, I mean, this is that, I mean, that's a whole other episode that we could, you could tackle that whole thing, but just basically the decline of the enforcer role is kind of around that mm-hmm. time period, because it's like, like you said, when those nuclear weapons started to get minimal ice time, and then it's like, well, we'll give, you know, we got to give our guy a shift. So they'll give the other guy a shift. They're both out there. Okay. I guess we'll fight because this, we probably won't get another shift. So then it becomes the air quote staged fight. Well, mm-hmm. and it was to some degree, to a large degree, but at the same time, I don't blame yeah. the guys because they got to do something because it's like, well, I'm not going to play again. So let you're out here. Let's fight. And I think that's what started the decline because then it starts to become like, what are these, what are they even fighting for? You know, like, I mean, I didn't have a problem with them fighting, but I can, I can see the argument being made that it's just like, well, this is pointless. And it's to some, and to a bigger degree and to a degree it is for sure. Cause it's like that had no bearing on anything, right? Like, you know, our guy won, maybe that helps the team a little bit, but overall it's like, well, it's just kind of a yeah. side, it becomes a sideshow almost. Where, side show and like a little morale boost. Yeah, but it so, didn't. Yeah, as uh, the eighties gave way to the nineties, uh, yeah, the role of the fighter became less and less. And I part of that I think was the instigator penalty started getting uh, applied a heck of a lot more than it had been, and that made coaches use their tough guys less yeah put them out there yeah and just kind of pigeonholed in this you know one sideshow part of the game where you know they would just get the couple shifts and that's it fight the other guy's tough guy so yeah it was kind of the enforcement of that instigator penalty and you know and what it became like not only a two-minute minor but a game misconduct too that really hurt the game, I think, and then hurt the role of the tough guy. Well, yeah, and that, and then that became the whole, 
okay, like I'm not just going to grab you now and punch you because I don't want to get kicked out and get the extra two and all yeah. that. So now I have to politely ask you, and then you have yep. to agree, and then we have the whole Marcus of Queensberry thing, and then this is where this code thing starts because, wow, I don't want to jump, and, you know, we get an extra penalty and all this. So, I mean, it, and it starts to become really convoluted in what's going on, and it was like, no, the whole point back then was to inflict damage on people and to, like, wreak mayhem, you know? It wasn't, you know, oh, don't psych me out so I won't psych you out, and that way we won't get minor penalties and all this shit. Like, like it became a much more agreed-upon event, and it's like, you know, whereas in the 80s and early 90s, like, those guys were allowed, they played a regular shift, and they were able to create. Like, they were out there a lot, so they could run around a little bit and hit and maybe start some stuff and whatever. And A few shifts ago, hey, you ran so-and-so, so so I'm out of here. I'm going to straighten this out now. And that it all developed. There was a story involved in why it was happening, not just, wow, you're out here, I'm out here. We should probably do something. Yeah, it was more spontaneous in the 80s. Yeah. You know. Yeah, watching back to Dave Brown real quick. Watching those uh, two tapes, I noticed once it was Brown of the 1990s, suddenly there's a lot more of the fights off the face-off kind of uh, uh, battles going on and a whole lot less of fights born out of the physical play, just, you know, organic fights that are spontaneous. Uh, You know, suddenly it was more of the prearranged stuff and couldn't help but notice it coincided with the instigator penalty becoming more prevalent. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Light the lamp during the hockey playoffs with DraftKings Sportsbook. Right now, new customers can make a $5 bet and score $150 in bonus bets instantly. Yeah, guys. I mean, Edmonton, odds on favorite right now at the DraftKings Sportsbook, plus 425 to win the cup. They have a lot of player props. Who's going to lead this, each series in scoring? Austin Matthews. McDavid, check it out. All the player props are there for the series as well as games, in-game action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and sign up with the code THPN. New customers can make $5 hockey playoff bet and score $150 in bonus bets instantly. That's code THPN. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. Okay, we're back here. We're doing doing some saving. I don't want to lose anything. Um, yeah, well, I know uh, Chris had mentioned the instigator here, and uh, in terms of instigating and rules and and everything else, this is going somewhere. But John, I'm going to ask you. There's a big segment of the uh, of the hockey fight community, um, and I know it's fashionable. And I and I don't I don't like the little prick either, but it's fashionable to shit on Gary Bettman, and. And he has done a lot of shitty things, without a doubt, and everything else. I mean, we're not going to debate as commissioner how it's gone. But in terms of in the fighting realm of things, he gets blamed. Oh, they don't fight anymore because that's the way Bettman likes it. Bettman didn't want it. What What are your feelings on on the Gary Bettman thing? I it's just it just doesn't correspond with the reality as, as I as I've seen it. Um, and like you, I'm not a fan of Gary Bettman. I think he's a just slimy, scummy lawyer. He is a lawyer. That's it. that's his job. But I, I think part of the problem comes with this like, just this very immature idea that like, well, he's the commissioner of the NHL, and so like he runs the league with like complete authority, and that's 
it's just not what it is. He he's just the and, and I know like Occupy fans, mostly just hockey fans, they don't really care about the structure of the league and how things are actually working behind the scenes. They care about the games and you know who's winning and losing. But like you just have to look at like at what things really are. And what Bedman is is he's just the kind of the spokesman, the elected representative for the board of governors, which is just a fancy way of saying the owners of the teams themselves. And so he's not really like, he doesn't, he's not involved really in hockey decisions. He doesn't oversee how the game operates. That's why there's a job called director of hockey, director of hockey operations, making rules, how the game is run. That's that guy's job. And for the longest time, that's been Colin Campbell. And I'm not just saying, Oh, blame him. Um, but, you know, you can juxtapose some of the things Colin Campbell has said. You can go look up, you know, emails that he said, you know, uh, quotes he's, he's had, in, you know, from the media. And juxtapose that with what Bedman said when, you know, I remember very clearly watching an episode of The Fifth Estate, which is a show uh, the CBC does up here in Canada, kind of an exposition on fighting in hockey. And it was after... Uh, the tragic death of Don Sanderson and that kind of really sparked the debate, you know, just fighting belong in the game. Should it be taken out? And, you know, the journalist there, you know, he's coming, coming at Batman with, you know, all, you know, studies have found, you know, concussions and CTE from fighting in hockey. And this is all, you know, this, you know, he's clearly pushing the idea that, you know, fighting is not good and it should be taken out. And, you know, <laughs> If you're a fan of hockey fan, you know, watch Batman and his response. He's very careful, very deliberate. He's a lawyer, after all. But he defends fighting. And he was even so bold as to take a very veiled, maybe not so veiled shot at the source of those findings. You know, of, I think it was Boston University and the research team there. And he, you know, he kind of said, like, yeah, you know, they, they put out what's good for them and what makes them money. And, you know, I, I kind of sat back in my chair. I'm like, hey, that's. You know, he's not wrong. Is nope. that a bit, you know, is that a bit bold? Is that a bit, uh, maybe, maybe some don't like the taste of that. But, you know, that's not what he would say if he was anti-fighting. And we were just talking about the instigator rule. You know, I did a bit of, you know, research on that. Well, the instigator rule came in in 1992, 1993. And in that summer, Edmund was not, a part of the NHL yet, at least on paper. He became commissioner sometime through that season. So I look at, like, you know, so who became, who were the guys who were pushing the instigator rule? Because I think that is really how how fighting started declining and it became a one-dimensional role for a select few players and then slowly... it just it mattered less and less and less, and eventually we got to the point where we're at now, where there's just there's no enforcers. Enforcing is not even a, a part of the game anymore, and fighting's just it, it really has diminished a, a fraction of what it was before. But you know, in reading this one article, I found it, of all the of all things, it sounds like one of the the two kind of proponents of it were the Boston Bruins president and general manager, Harry Sinden, and Barbie Clark, 
of the Philadelphia Flyers. So of all the teams, <laughs> the Bruins and Flyers, maybe the two most, you know, the two toughest organizations all time. How many countless tough guys, memorable moments, you know, those teams had, those franchises had. And it was them who were at the forefront spearheading the introduction of the inscatable. And, you know, I said, Clark said there was too much fighting. It was getting out of hand. He said, you know, Sinden won fighting out all together, but we voted on it and they ended up coming up with the inscatable, which was just going to be a two minute penalty. Then it was later adjusted to, you know, you get a 10 in a game misconduct or, you know what I mean? It, the whole process started. Edmund was not involved in that, nor would he have been had he even been as commissioner at that point. You know, and like like I said, I, I get it. He's a he's an annoying guy. He it's easy to hate him, and I'm not saying he's you know, I'm not saying he's pro fighting either. But I think if you go look at you know his public stances on it, he's always been very clear that he references that the players want it, that fans want it, and he's not in any hurry to, you know, sweep it out of the league. Like that that's not uh that's not been his deal. Nope, that's true. Chris, you got any thoughts on this? Uh, not too much. I think John covered it pretty well. Um as far as who was in charge of the league Back when the instigator was getting introduced, I think it was Gil Stein, right? Yes, Wasn't yes, he the? Yes, it was. Yep. The guy for him, John Ziegler. Yep. I think were the two guys. So maybe if you want to point the finger at guys who got the ball rolling, maybe it's Ziegler and Stein are more who you want to point the finger at. I think, yeah, because Batman is just so damn unlikable. You know, people just want to yeah. hang anything on him that they can. And uh, you're mm-hmm. right. I don't think overtly done anything to get rid of fighting. And I think, John, you said it best mm-hmm. that Bettman always deferred to players want it, fans like it. So I'm not going to do anything about it. It's really not him who's to blame for the decline of fighting. You know, I think you have to go to the junior leagues. Yeah. Uh, they've done so much to outlaw fighting. And because of the outlawing of fighting, you're not going to get fighters coming up in the NHL. Because if they don't learn the trade in the junior ranks, they're not going to suddenly become tough guys and enforcers in the NHL. Because, they, you know, they just didn't get uh, schooled that way in the juniors. So it's really, if you want to point the blame, I'd say these junior leagues, whoever's running them, yeah. They're more to blame the lessening of fighting. Yeah, I mean, that's what I've said all the time. It's David Branch and Hockey Canada. That's who is to blame for this. I mean, I know yep. Bettman's the default answer because, oh, he's the commissioner and fighting has gone down. Okay, but I mean, like I'll say to these guys, well, what fight rule has Bettman ever put in? I can't think of any since he, in fact, the instigator has been was changed to a game misconduct to a 10-minute misconduct when he was in yeah. charge. But again, it's not him. Yeah. You know, so it's just like, I think the only rule, actually, as I'm saying it now, I think the only rule I can think of, and it's a shit rule, actually, but is that stupid five minutes left in the third. If they instigate in the last five minutes of the game, it's a game misconduct, or it's a suspension. 
I think that's a new rule that has come in in the last however many years. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, for yeah. the, I think Batman's well, he's been in charge for almost thirty years. I mean, I don't remember him putting in any anti-fight rule, you know. And and as John said, he's been very vocal about being pro-fight. Now, I'm sure he's not out there swinging pom-poms about it, but at the same time, he can also he also knows that he doesn't he never really had to do anything to reduce fighting. Junior hockey was going to take care of that for him, so he didn't need to do anything. David Branch yeah. and Quebec League and the Ontario Hockey League, because the WHL has never put in a fight rule, but the Ontario League and the Quebec League putting in their fight limits, well, that took care of everything right there. And Junior A Hockey putting in their fight limits across Canada. That's why I said some of these people, like they live in their NHL bubble and they don't understand what goes on outside the NHL. Well, no, it's everything that in junior is what affects the NHL because that's the next generation of player that's coming. And like you said, if there's no enforcers in junior, guys are never going to fight in junior, aren't going to all of a sudden show up in the NHL and throw down 30 times in a year. It's like, that doesn't work that yeah. way. Uh, because you always say you can't, nope. you can't paint stripes on a house cat and call it a tiger. You know, it's like, it doesn't work that way. All mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's guys that might be, ah, oh, well, if I'm going to stick around, maybe I might have to throw down a couple times. But, I mean, that's, what, twice, three times a year? I mean, let's dial down the, oh, he's an enforcer now. Well, like that kid in Montreal. I like the kid, whatever his name, Wi-Fi that they call him or whatever. But, I mean, he has five fights and everyone's yeah. screaming that Montreal's got the next enforcer after Todd Ewan and Lyle Odeline. Well, come on now. Let's let's dial it down. He fought five times. So it's like, I have nothing against the kid, but let's calm down on what we're calling an enforcer. I mean, so, I mean, yeah. you have guys coming out of junior that literally have three fights in their life. Well, they're not going to go to the NHL yeah. and all of a sudden have 20 fights. So, of course, fighting is going to go down. And, and that had nothing to do with Batman. That was all junior hockey. It's like you chop a tree down from the bottom, not the top. So it's yep. like... Yeah, well, that's how you got rid of it. Mm-hmm. So Batman didn't have to, even if he yeah. wanted to, he didn't have to. It got taken care of for him. So he could sit there, well, I like mm-hmm. fights, you know. But meanwhile, he knows they're going to just basically, I don't think they'll ever go away. But I mean, you know, they're to next to nothing now. So it's, you know, whatever. But yeah, this idea that it's Gary's fault is like, no, I mean, I get he's the default face of the league, but like John said, well, he's not even, it's not like he's the supreme ruler making up all the rules. I mean, there's a bloody rules committee and everything else that's got to vote on this shit, and he's just a mouthpiece, a mouthpiece yeah. for what the owners want. It's not like he's sitting there coming up with this shit, but, yep. the, mm-hmm. but yeah, but it's interesting, and it, every time it's like, oh, hockey's so soft now, yo, fucking Batman. Okay, well, it's, it's not him. <laughs> oh, believe me, I would love to say it is. Because I hate the little weasel. I'd love to say it's his fault, yeah. but it's not. So, yeah. It is not. No. Oh, well. Yeah. No, uh, no it's, well, it's, enough, yeah, enough of the slimy attorneys. Let's, let's talk about something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna throw one at you. I know it wasn't on your guys' list or whatever, but it, it got brought up again yesterday. And it, um, Ryan Reeves is the example that they use. Speaking of like, oh, they don't fight anymore, blah blah blah, whatever. But in this next generation, there's always this idea, and this is the old farts. This is you know our Chris and I, you know our generation of fan on these boards yelling about this. 
But there's this mm-hmm. idea that Ryan Reeves and Lucic and these guys, they couldn't hang in the 80s. They'd get murdered. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, you both have seen this. and we've I've yapped about it on here before. But... Uh, <laughs> Chris, what do you what are you thinking about when they someone says Ryan Reeves couldn't hang in the eighties? No, I think that's nonsense. I think he's got the attitude and the physical tools to do just fine in the eighties and nineties. I don't think he would be the heavyweight champ of the league like he is now. Obviously, he is now because he doesn't really have much in the way of competition. But I think he would be perfectly at home in the nineteen nineties. I think he's tough enough to hang with, you know, Probert and Twist, Domi, Grinson, McKenzie, McCarthy, McSorley, and so on. I think Reeves would be perfectly at home fighting those guys, and I think he would do okay. He wouldn't be number one, but he would do just fine. He's a throwback to that era. Uh, You know, I think he he would have been great. He would have been just fine. If he had come up in the 90s, he would have been right up there with all those guys, and he would have taken part in many classic fights, I'm sure. Just not the champ. John, what are you thinking? Um, I think Chris said it all, man. Like, he he can play the game. He hits. He, you know, mixes it up. He talks trash, but he, he backs it up. It's just not his fault. There's no one there to challenge him anymore, and... Yeah, I think he. I think he'd probably fight more. I think maybe you know he would, you know, he'd get a little more, a little more competition, and you know, not run around like, maybe not run around quite to the extent he does because he knows, you know, against like there's only four or five guys in the league, maybe not even that, who could give him a run for his money. So yeah, he can kind of do whatever he wants. He knows no one's going to do anything about it. I don't think he could play like that, but I mean, I don't think he'd, he'd turn into a, he's not going to turn into a pussy though. Like he only, he always has been a physical player. I, you know, he would just have to probably fight more and I don't think he'd do quite as well, but you know, obviously the game was a lot different back then. There were a lot more guys who could go and, but yeah, the idea that he couldn't last or he, you know, he couldn't hang with those guys. I mean, he's he's strong. He can throw. Um, he got the right attitude about it. So, yeah, yeah. I, I don't buy that at all. No, yeah. I, I'm always, like, yeah, they're, like, especially the, you know, my the older generation of fan my age or whatever, you know, 40s, 50 years old. It's I, I think it's always this revisionist history, right? Everyone likes to think that, oh, in the everyone was a killer. All these guys were just, oh, you know, they were just right out of the state pen and they were ready to murder everybody. And it's just like, I've, I have a lot of mixed 80s fight DVDs and the fights are fucking awful for the majority of them. There's, there, I mean, it's not like every fight was Churla McGuire. You know, it's like they weren't, I could tell you. So, but I think if, oh, it was better back then. Well, there was just, there was more. I don't know if they were maybe necessarily better all the time but there was just more to choose from but like i told the guy the other day i said well first of all i always laugh that reeves is the one that catches the shit for the league being soft like why is it why is it his fault i mean he's running around oh well he just runs around and melts off 
Yeah, okay, and what? so the fact that what he shouldn't do that? Like, I mean, I don't under... Well, he's... I always... Growing adults using the word bully always sort of cracks me up too. But it's like, well, he's a bully. Well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? I always thought that was the point. But I'm like, so it's his fault that three quarters of the league has nobody. So you're going to shit on Reeves yeah. for that. Well, why don't you shit on the yeah. other 28 or 25 teams that don't have anyone tough? Why don't you shit on them? Yeah. Why are you shitting on the guy that actually plays that role? The one true tough guy who's left. Yeah. Oh, I hate him. Yeah. I don't understand that complete lack of logic. No, it's like, oh, him, Lucic, Wilson. Oh, yeah, they're just clowns and they wouldn't hang back in the day. It's like, what are you talking about? Like I told the guy, I said, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there were plenty of ham and eggers playing back then. I'm not knocking anybody, but I mean, I always use the term, like, okay, if Jay Caulfield and Neil Sheehy and Tory Robertson and these guys can all play hundreds of NHL games and you're saying Reeves couldn't, like, come on. You know, like, I'm not saying, again, like Chris said, I'm not saying Reeves is challenging Probert and Brown for the number one spot in the league. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm like, there is plenty of, like, middle-of-the-road, you know, fighters back then. Because every team had, like, two and three, four guys Right, I mean, he could fit in into that middle tier, upper tier guy that would fight people. I mean, this idea that oh, he would just get annihilated and be run out of the league, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's like no, he wouldn't. But I always laugh. It's like yeah, he becomes the poster boy for everything that's wrong. I'm like, well, if anything, he should be held up. As fight fans, should we not have basically him on a mantle right now? I mean, because he's like the last Mohican. Yeah, he's like the last of the Mohicans, right? It's like, but yet these people just shit on him. Like, I don't, I'm like, I don't get it. Again, not that I'm running out buying Reeves jerseys or anything, but I mean, holy shit, seriously? What, what's his, it's not his fault. I don't know. I don't get it. No. I mean, you could say that about some other guys playing, I think, but not him. Like, he's, he is legit tough. He's just, you know, he doesn't have anyone, like, like really, he was just born the wrong decade. He was just born in the wrong decade. That's all he's guilty of. Yeah, yeah, yep. and I mean, and there's a few guys in the American League and and stuff like that. Like I always say, the toughest guy in hockey is Brett Gallant. But I mean, he's stuck in the American League, you know. So it's like, and he could hang with anybody too, you know. As Matt yep. Cassian quickly found out when he got his one game, and the fact that and, well, Gallant here in Saskatoon had to fight with Brian McGratton and was was given as good as he was getting. And, I mean, that's all you needed to see right there. It's like, well, if he can hang with McGratton, clearly he could hang with anyone. And Yeah. But it's just it's just wrong decade, you know, unfortunately. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Let's face it, with coffee starting at 5 bucks, yes, even without the customizations, and our bank accounts somehow always depleting, we're officially entering a dupe session. Most products do the same thing but are priced differently solely based on the brand name. So a good duplicate, or dupe, is critical for getting the highest quality at the best price. And one dupe you definitely shouldn't sleep on, Raycon wireless earbuds. Raycon is a premium audio at the perfect price point, so you can listen to what you want, when you want, without breaking the bank. Everywhere you turn, people have earbuds in. And they're always talking about, oh, I lost this one, I lost that one, you wouldn't believe how much it cost me. Well... Raycon's mission is to prove that you shouldn't have to pay an arm and a leg for quality sound and essential smart tech listening features. 
You can get a pair and a spare and still pay less than you would with some of the other more big-name tech brands out there. Raycon knows that in this economy, every purchase needs to be perfect. They offer a buy now, pay later options. Right now, you can pay as low as $18 at checkout. They have easy and free return guarantee. They offer two years of product protection insurance for just a couple bucks. They offer free domestic shipping and flat fee international shipping. They have over 50,000 five-star reviews. That's right, guys. Eight hours of playtime on these things. And they actually, with the gel tips, they actually fit into most ears. I know I always have difficulty with that. And they fit into mine perfectly. Um, and the sound, tremendous. So right now, go buyraycon.com slash THPN today to get 15% off your Raycon order. That's buyraycon.com slash THPN to score 15% off. Buyraycon.slash THPN. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. Oh, I, you know what I was going to say? I completely forgot to mention this when you were, it was, I think it was right on our first topic. When you were, yeah, it was. It was the Clark McSorley thing. When you're talking about if you watch the first five seconds of the fight or whatever, just to, <clears throat> just to branch off from that. And, uh, well, Chris, I'll, I'll start with you. I know you guys are, don't know about this. I, I'm just bringing this up now. How big of a role is in terms of like fight fans and like people discussing stuff on message boards and whatever? How big of an impact do you think the announcers have on swaying people's opinion? Oh, yeah. Good question. Gosh. You know what? Probably it really depends on, it depends on the announcer. If they have some charisma to them, yeah, they could probably get the fans listening to them all the time to believe anything almost. Um, you know, some of the, oh, I'm trying to think one of the goofiest homers ever. I can't remember his name, but he was the play caller for the Minnesota North Stars back in the day. And he would get real excited for the fight. But I, I think he was the guy who called a pretty good fight between Shane Churla and Bob Basson back in, like, 93. And the way he was going, you thought that Churla, like, you know, ripped his face off completely in that fight. And, you know, Basson is just helpless and, you know, just getting murdered. If you were a Minnesota fan who had to listen to that guy all the time, yeah, you might be swayed by that. I think the best thing to do would be to kill the volume and just, you know, watch the fight itself and not be swayed one way or the other. Um, yeah, I, I think for some people, maybe the more casual fight fans, yeah, they probably do get swayed by what the announcers are telling them. Yeah, like I think it's like subliminal, right, almost. Like you, you say it enough times, yeah. it's like they buy well, – I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going to throw in this, but John, where are you with this with this announcer thing? I no, I I I definitely see it. Like we were talking about the YouTube comment section or whatever, and and even back in you know back in like the fight four days or whatever, like you get announcers who always get real excited when their guys doing well and overstate everything that you know their team is doing. Derek the other guy, <laughs> yeah. Derek Tanison, Jack Edwards, who's yep. absolutely freaking horrible. He's I'm oh. surprised he has a job and he like still with how, like I can understand like every team in their announcers 
can be biased and have their home moments. But that guy was just so damn unprofessional. It's oh, it makes me want yeah. to throw up listening to him. He's honestly, and, and some players have come out and said like, "What a clown this guy is." I don't, I don't know why anyone respects anything he says. Which is actually like, when he shuts it off, he's not actually bad at his job, but he just he sinks so low when he when fights happen or whatever, and talking about you know, Chara and, you know, the reign of terror he had over the NHL. It's like, okay, please, buddy, he's fighting nobody. <laughs> like, but, yeah, like, I think a lot of a lot of fans, like, they, they just pick up, on, like, the track of the announcer and, yeah. you know, there's there's several <laughs> who have just a long, Boston. long, yeah, Bo- Boston. Boston's had a long history of interesting announcers, haven't they? Um, yeah, back they, in the day, it was Derek Sanderson. Yeah, Derek Sanderson back in the day uh, yeah. was interesting with the way he would call fights. And mm-hmm. uh, it's morphed into Jack Edwards now. I'm like, oh, God, I pine for the days of Derek Sanderson now after listening to that class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Well, and John, yeah. John took it right out of my mouth there with the Chara thing because that's where I noticed it. And it was because, again, for those – newer folks tuning into this show. I don't watch hockey anymore. I haven't watched in a decade or plus. So, but when I did my Chara, cause I got so tired of all these people, Chara was the King and he's the champ and whatever. And I'm like, he can't really fight. Oh no, he's a killer. I'm like, no, he's really not. What heavyweight does he ever beat? And if you say Pat Maroon, I'm going to reach through the screen and choke you. No, seriously. What, have you, and of course it's Hamada, 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 and they can't come up with anything. So I went back and I, I went through all of, I went through Chara's fight card for his whole career and just looked up the heavyweight fights. And I remember I sat here one afternoon watching YouTube and I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm, and I, and I think I might have mentioned it too when I finally did the show on Chara. Well, one, he didn't actually beat any heavyweight. The only one he did was Kochi. And Kochi was starting yep. the fight with a broken nose to begin with. So the fact that he even fought him was unbelievable. But other than that, the moment he might have been winning the first couple punches, and the moment anyone started on offense, Chara would, air quote, slip and go down. Every time. Mm-hmm. For those listening, go watch. You, I am not lying. Yep. If I'm lying, I'm flying. And my feet haven't left the ground. So it's like, nope. yeah. Right. But... When you listen to the fight and you listen to the announcer, and it didn't have to just be Jack Edwards, it was all of them. Oh, well, this guy better watch it against the monster Chara, because if he gets a hold of you, it's lights out. Every one of them pumped up. And again, the guy mm-hmm. is massive and everything. I get it. Like, you look at him, he looks like, you know, fucking terror. Like, I get it. But that's yeah. not matching up to what's happening on the screen. Like, he isn't killing people. He isn't. Like, you watch against another heavyweight fighter. He's not killing anybody. In fact, he's bailing on every cool. fight. And it's... But they yeah. don't mention that. They're just like, oh, you got to watch Chara. Watch out if he gets mad. You know. Oh, and then, then that's the end of the fight. They never come right out. None of them ever came right out and said, well, he bailed. Like, even on the replay, they don't even say it. They just, you know, no, whatever. If anything, if anything, the announcers, when... Chara would do the bailout and slip and fall, the announcers would be like, oh, his opponent is lucky that they fell down. Exactly. My that's goodness. Ex- that's exactly what he said. Oh, Chara slipped there. I'll tell you, Karen's really got, got away with one there. 
Oh, oh, really? Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Eric Karens was just shaking in his boots. You know, it's just like, come on. I can remember talking about this and like Scott Parker replying on Twitter and he just come right out and said it. He goes, Achara's a fucking joke. Scott Parker just literally said it on yeah. Twitter. And of course, all, that, all these people are replying like, oh, what would you know? And of course, Parker's like, well, I don't know. I dropped him twice, so... I don't know. What would I know? Who knows? And and I mean, even George LaRock and John Scott said it on John Scott's podcast. They're like, yeah, Char would bail every yeah. time he fought him. He did it like three times to LaRock. You know? And, and I always thought it was funny, too, after that. Uh, like, obviously, everyone remembers that one Scott hit on, uh, I think it was Erickson, the, was the Bruins guy. And then McQuaid mm-hmm. kind of jumped him. But, it, you know, you think John Scott, one of the biggest guys in the league, you know, where was Chara then? You know, the captain. He should be sticking up for his guys, right? He didn't want any part of uh, John Scott. He let Sean Thornton fight him. And Thornton, you know, he he didn't lose many fights, but Scott took him apart in that one. And, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, he's a real, real brave, brave dude, you know. I just, you know, the one guy who could actually match Scott, you know, size-wise, and he didn't want any part of him. No. I mean, you could go like the oh, like well, he's he's too talented to fight a guy like that. No, well, he was he wasn't too talented to fight, you know, Alexei Yemelin. wasn't too talented to fight Jay Harrison. wasn't too talented to fight Pat Maroon. wasn't too talented to fight all these other guys he fought. Like that weren't any issue for him. So, no, man, I I was gonna write down this Char was an elite fighter, but I'll be honest, like after your episode. Well, you broke it all down. There's, there's no need to yeah. rehash it. You did a better job than we'll do now. Yeah. Well, and you it's, covered it quite admirably. Yeah, well, it, good yeah, and it's just it's just frustrating. I mean, and that's the thing. And, it's, and as soon as, and then it's like, well, no, he never beat any heavyweight. Inevitably, they'll show the Kochi fight. That's the one clip that they'll show. It's like, okay, I'll give it other than Kochi. Then who? What heavyweight did he went beat? Well, he's a Hall of Famer. Okay, and that has what okay. to do with what we're talking about. Like that, I've never knocked Chara's talent. Of course, he's a Hall of Fame player. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about his fighting ability. And this is got look at this. I'm going to segue into another Hall of Famer's fighting ability that's completely overrated. Gordy Howe. Okay, now wow. here we go into this Gordy Howe business. And of course, being in Saskatchewan, they, they, I might have to move after this episode for shitting on Gordy. Now, I'm gonna, I unfortunately have to preface this by saying this is nothing against Gordie Howe, the hockey player and the talent and everything, the Hall of Famer that he is and the amazing athlete that he was to play as long as he did and everything else. That's not what this is about. This is about for everyone who thinks Gordie Howe is the greatest hockey fighter to ever live, which was said in my post asking about this for this show. Um, Chris, I know you brought, it was on your list here of, uh, Gordy number one, um, the floor the floor is yours, sir. Sure. Well, you know I could just keep it simple. Um, it's really the Lou Fontanato pictures that people are going by, not even the fight because there is no footage of the fight. They're just going by what Fontanato's nose looked like, and it, yeah, it was smashed in, and then we're done. You know. Uh, 
who was it? Was it Steve Rame who did like a real deep breakdown of Gordy Spikes by looking at ancient newspaper articles and microfiche? Yeah, and he really did some sleuthing on Gordy's fights, and there's not that many. There's only a few, but he wasn't ripping people's heads off in those fights. Most of the newspaper accounts from reporters sounds like they were draws or uneventful fights. So him being this great heavyweight fighter is an incredibly overblown myth, mainly due to those photos of Lou Fontenato's nose. Uh, you know, how I'm sure could take care of himself. I have no doubt the guy was built like the proverbial brick shit out. But I think his fearsome reputation is more from his viciousness with his elbows and his stick more than anything than with his fists. I'm not saying the guy couldn't take care of himself, but he was not the, you know, all-time heavyweight champion of the NHL. Again, it's just something the myths got passed from one generation to another of, uh, you know, Detroit fans, really. And uh, the legend has just grown grotesquely out of proportion as the years have gone by. And we see it all the time on uh, on the message boards and on the fight pages. It's just nuts. But, so, I know some, yeah. somebody had mentioned it one time. Somebody made the statement. It was It's completely true when you think about it on these message boards. I think when a talented player fights, his fighting ability becomes completely overblown. Yeah. It, it gets greatly exaggerated. And it doesn't matter who we're talking about, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah I, it's, it's interesting. Uh, John, you got anything to say about Mr. Hockey? Uh, I I could I could just as well say like he was the worst fight of all time and never won any fight based on all the video I've seen of him because the same amount of video as ninety percent of the people who are saying he's the best fight of all time I've seen. Like the guy played in the late forties to like the early seventies. It's just not. I don't know how you can make a judgment based on newspaper articles and photographs. Like you know. Like, you could take a photo of Todd Ewan after his fight with uh, Tony Simpson. He looked pretty bad, but he dropped twist. I said Simpson. I meant twist. But, you know, to me, it's like, unless you have seen it, I don't know how you can comment so strongly about it. But, like you said, that's how how these myths take on a life of their own. People just grab onto, you know, some small thing. And it could be true. Like, was Gordy tough? No doubt about that, and he's probably a real mean, mean player to play against. But as a fighter, like I don't know how you can make that kind of judgment on his ability based off There's of not no evidence. Like any support it. No, exactly. like well, and like like you said, with Steve going through it, a bunch of guys have gone through the old newspaper dot com and gone back and read, looked at the box score, and the next day read up on the game reports. And I mean, it depends. I mean, you read the one the home teams. The you know the opponent of Gordy, of course, their guy won. Or you read the Detroit news, oh, Gordy killed them, and so I mean, both announcers or both reporters are going to have their slant on it. But I mean, it has been documented from a number of different people, like like Vern Flamen, uh, 
Shiro, guys like that beat up Powell. I mean, it's it's written, it's been written in newspapers. Other players have said it. So it's like this idea that Howe never lost, again, is ridiculous. And you go back and look, and I think he only had, what was it, 23 fights in his career? Well, he played 25 years, so it's like, it was just, it wasn't back, they just, there wasn't enforcers back then. Like, everybody played, and every once in a while a fight would break out. Kind of like today, actually. They, you know, whatever. The enforcer didn't come along yeah, right. until, like, like uh, Ferguson. Like, you know. like 70s, maybe? What's 70s? that? Yeah. Like in the early 70s? Pretty much, yeah. It was like the late 60s, early 70s. Like, yeah, it was like Noel Picard and like Flint or Ferguson and all those guys. I mean, that kind of came in when, you know, now if you want to make the argument Ferguson, okay, well, he did more fighting than Howe certainly did. But, I mean, like this guy was writing out, yeah. Well, and the fact it's called the Gordy Al-Hattrick is a joke when they only had one of them. Talkin' at 18 yeah. of them. It should be called the Rick Talkin' Hattrick then, you know. You're right. But then his Didn't son... his own son... Didn't uh, uh, Gordy's own son say that the, the Gordy Al hat trick is a misnomer? He said it really should be a goal, assist, and a cross check to the face. Yeah, that would be more accurate, he said. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, well, and I remember, like, I brought this up a few episodes ago, but we're, somebody was talking about Gordy, and it was in the WHA. Well, he was 50 years old playing in the WHA, or in his late 40s. And I mean, which is a, t- and, he, and he was 100, 100 points, like an incredible athlete. There's no doubt about that. But the, oh yeah, no, yeah, the boys stayed clear of Gordy. Really? Like you really think Jack Carlson and like Gord Gallant and all these 20 something year old goons were scared of a 50 year old Gordy Howe? Come on, man. Like what are we doing here? Like, no, they, they're just, what are you going to do by beating up a 50 year old? I mean, you're going to look like an asshole, right? Like, so it's like, that's why it never happened. You can't win either way. No. So it's like, no. Yeah. That, that wasn't going to happen. And they, and they had too much respect for him to go do that. They weren't going to do that. Right. But this yeah. idea that, oh, it's, they didn't mess with Gordy because they were scared. It's like, <laughs> what? You're too scary. Yeah. It's like, mm, come on now. You know. Anyway, I just mentioned, uh, no, go ahead. Uh, sorry. You mentioned the whole idea of, like, Whenever a star player is, uh, you know, gets tough or whatever, or plays a little tough, it always seems to get, you know, so overhyped. The yeah. guy for me that stands out for that, obviously a bit more my generation, is Mark Messier, who, like, I know he did a little bit of fighting early in his career, but, you know, as the years went on, he really didn't fight at all. And, like, but he piled up penalty minutes, and he always had this reputation of being such a tough guy, and I'm like, all this guy does is elbow people. <laughs> like, he doesn't, he doesn't even throw clean hits half the time. They're just, he's just elbowing guys in the head. He never drops his gloves. Like, what oh. about him? He, you know, ah. Oh, I get, oh, another, compl- I completely agree. I used to, I used to say that about Chris Jellios too. I'm like, yeah. For a guy with, he had like, what was it, the one year he had 300 minutes of penalties. How many fights did he have? It was like three? Like, yeah. That uh, personally, if I'm the coach, I'm pissed because there's a Norris Trophy candidate getting a lot of bad penalties. Like, yeah, how much? How many? Yeah. I, I mean, and the dude still had like 80 points or something. It's like, well, shit, man, you would have had like a hundred and some points if you had maybe knocked 200 minutes of penalties off. Like, you know, <laughs> that's a lot of tens. Like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah, that was more of his mouth than yeah. anything that got him. 
conduct, so. Yeah. But yeah, Messier, there's always that, oh yeah, the power, yeah, well, the, well there you go, there's a whole other myth, the definition of power forward. I mean, that's completely been bastardized over the years. I had, I had a kid arguing with me, Ovechkin was a power forward. I said, well, he has the same amount of fighting majors as Wayne Gretzky has in his career. So where were you getting that Ovechkin's up? Well, he hits. Well, okay. I'm like, that's not what the phrase was. The phrase was made up from uh, for people that would fight and score and hit. I mean, Ovechkin does the hitting and the scoring part, but he doesn't do any of the fighting part. You know, yeah, he's missing. Back. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, well, that's not really a power forward. It's like, and then the one guy's like, oh, just a power forward doesn't mean you fight. And I'm like, how old are you? You have to, I guarantee you're like 19, aren't you? Or 20 or 21. Because yeah. anybody in their 30s or 40s wouldn't say that. Like, that sounds ridiculous. A power forward, but you don't have to fight. Well, then you're not a power forward. Like, anyway, that's yeah. my, that was my tangent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I'm looking at my list. Where are we? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I guess I, I gotta, I gotta, I'm gonna put the ball on the tee here for Chris because I know he was fairly. Uh, I think it was the other Chris that you wanted to talk to about this. Our friend Chris that likes to delete all his comments. Hey, dude, if you're gonna oh. say all that shit, leave your comments up. <laughs> Come on, man, you delete yeah. all your shit. Yeah, it's a little weak. But yeah. what there's, your your whole couple, your, yeah yeah. There's a couple we're, while we're on the uh, Detroit. Yes, uh, red here with Gordy Howe. We might as well go with the the other ones. I guess here's the simpler one. Uh, Joey Koser. Okay. Ended careers. You hear that a lot. Yes. Oh, Joey Koser. He ended so many guys' careers. And actually, if you look at his history, surprisingly, shockingly, no, he never did end anyone's careers. Um, he certainly injured quite a few people he put uh, a career on hold you know but he actually never did finish someone it's not like he fought someone and hurt them so bad that they were done and never played again uh didn't actually happen if you look at his list i think the five guys that he victimized the worst actually did bounce back and keep playing jim playfair Yep. Fought him in the minors uh, in the AHL. That was January 6th of uh, 85. Jim Playfair played for another eight years after that in the AHL, IHL, and he had a cup of coffee with the Blackhawks. Yeah. So that's fun. Don Jackson broke his face in February of 86. Bad injury, but the guy played a whole another year and retired in 87. Uh, Terry Karkner put him out of the game. And I think Karkner needed to have surgery on a busted nose, but the guy played 11 more seasons. Um, Jim Kite knocked him clean unconscious in November of 88. Kite played another nine more years. And the one they were came closest was Brad Delgarno. Uh, February of 89 is when he, you know, broke the entire one side of his face with a single punch. And granted, Brad Delgarno did miss the entire 89-90 season, but he came back. He actually did come back in 90-91, and he played until 1996. So I, I, 
am surprised too that you know, given what a heavy puncher and dangerous guy Joey Coaster was, uh, no, he never actually did retire someone. So that's a that's a myth, and it's busted. Well, that fight with that like, fight oh, that, that fight great. with the fight with Jim Playfair almost retired Coaster. Yeah, it all yeah almost ended his career before it began. Yeah, he got that infection. In his hand, because he, you know, he cut his hand on Jim Playfair's teeth, and they didn't clean the cut very well. And uh, when he reported to Detroit the next day, because they called him up immediately, the big club heard about the knockout and said, "All right, kid, you're ready for your big start in the NHL." Well, that wouldn't come for another month because Joey ended up in surgery the next day when his hand was blowing up and swollen from the infection. That got and poor guy almost lost his arm yeah you know they were concerned they would have to amputate his arm at the elbow that's how bad the infection was but you know thankfully uh medication and some surgery uh you know saved his hand saved his arm and saved his career but uh yeah interesting interesting myth there but uh surprisingly the truth is Never did end anyone. Well, there, yeah. Well, there you go. It, uh, yes, the Joey Coaster ended people uh, myth. But well, I mean, I guess when we talk about myths and the hockey fights and and everything, we've had many a battle. Uh, I know Chris has been exited out of the Bob Probert fan group. Um, <laughs> he, um, but Probert is definitely. Um, yeah. in terms of the big, the big myth for good or for bad, um, some are true, some are not. Um, but he definitely has the most fanboys that will not, uh, listen to reason or despite having video evidence sitting right on YouTube, but we won't look at that or we ignore that. But, um, I know you had a few, uh, uh, Probert things to talk about, and we'll, we'll, uh, John and I yeah. will, will bounce off of those. But, uh, f- what, what's your first one? We'll start one at a time, because I mean, I know you got four. So, what's your first one? Yeah. We'll go from there. Well, there's, there's some good and some bad, you know, as far as a Probert fan would be concerned. Uh, start with one of the crazier ones. There's so many people out there that think Probert never lost fights. Or if he did, there was some kind of extenuating circumstance that cheated Proby of his victory. And it's just insane the lengths that people go to trying to prove their beliefs. But it's nuts. Probert did lose fights. Not very many early in his career, but sure, he had, he had some losses, like it or not. You know, Baruby twice. Crowder, uh, Jeff Chikrin got him, um, you know, in the Detroit area. I guess you can put an asterisk next to them, but, you know, Semenko and Jennings got him. Not exactly the cleanest starts to those fights, but, you know, he was on the losing end. Uh, post-check, according to a whole lot of accounts of people there, it never made it to video, uh, post-check dropped him in a preseason of 92. Um, Sandy McCarthy outboxed him pretty well. And, of course, 
the knockout by Todd Ewan. This is insane. There have actually been people who have said to me on the uh, Facebook pages, oh, Bob wasn't knocked out. No, he wasn't out. Ewan didn't knock him out. Like, what are you watching? Like, yes, he he dropped him. Um, And yes, he was out. Probert was laying on his side, not moving for about 10 seconds. And then he got to his knees and he stayed on his knees in a daze for close to a minute before he got up and was able to skate off. I'm like, okay, if that's not a knockout, what is? I don't know what to say to these people. It's just bananas. It's like trying to argue with a flat earther. You know, <laughs> no, no, this is this is it. This is my belief, and I don't. You know, I've had people say I don't need to see yeah. video. You know, when I put up a YouTube clip of a certain fight, oh, I don't even need to see that. Yeah. Like you don't. Well, that's your okay. opinion. Yeah. I love that one. Well, that's your opinion. Well, no, that's the truth. I'm showing you the video. Yeah. Ah, that's your opinion, bro. Oh, okay. You know. And then, you know, Bob lost in his Chicago time. You know, he lost his share of fights, of course. Uh, you know, Domi got him once. Uh, Belange, Grimson a couple of times. Paul Laws, Nazarov, Chris Simon. Morris, Twist a couple times. Tamer dropped him. Morissette. Yeah. Morissette. Morissette. Uh, Shelly, Brashear. Uh, even his old buddy Coaster got the edge over him once. But bring that up to a Probert fanboy, they act like the Chicago era never happened. Or they say, oh, that's when Bobby was old. I'm like, okay, he was 30 years old. You know, they're acting like Chris Simon dragged a decrepit Bob Probert out of a wheelchair and beat the shit out of him. I'm like, no, he was, he was and Bob was winning a fair amount of fights in the Chicago era. Not like he became, you know, a, a pussy overnight. He never was his entire career. He was never that. So they try to, you know, down talk or, or what am I trying to say? Downplay yeah. the losses. Well, how, I want to see how old was he when he was in Chicago? I'm gonna I'm looking this up here. When he first, yeah, okay, he was 30 when he when he first got yeah. there. Yeah, so. and he played seven years, so he like 36, I think, when he retired. So he was like age 30 to 36, and it really didn't start to show his age until the final year. That's when he started taking some really bad. Yeah, bad losses, but you know mm-hmm. that Danny one who sticks around, yeah, a little too long. Age and the mileage catches up with them, but again, there's no. This doesn't tarnish Bob's legend no. in the slightest. These losses, it's not like he's any less of a great fighter. There's no dishonor in losing to guys like. You know, uh, Domi and McCarthy and Grinson, et cetera. There's, it's not like it's a – it tarnishes his reputation and ruins his reputation. It just doesn't. But they've oh. got this idealized memory of who Probert was and 
Don't try to tell them anything different. Well, that's what I said with Probert. The truth is good enough. You don't yeah. need you don't need to exaggerate. He was that good. Like if you go back and watch early, oh, I'm like I'm not trying to discount the Chicago either, but you kind of that that prime couple seasons in with Detroit. God, he was a fucking Terminator. Like yeah. awesome, and he's playing oh, yeah. a regular shift, and he's like even Twist said that was the most amazing thing with Probert. Twist said I could I got to sit for ten and fifteen minutes. And all I could think of was getting was getting him, and I could wind myself up and everything else. He goes, he had to play. He was out there trying to score and shit. I was just sitting there staring at him the whole time, getting ready. So then, when I got my shift out against him, that he's all I've been thinking about for fifteen minutes. Well, he hasn't been thinking about me. Well, he's been thinking about me, but and scoring and playing the power play and everything else. So he says that was always the amazing thing with Probert is he had to play all the time too. Not like some of us, yeah. like Twist saying it for himself, but it's true. And I mean, that was the amazing thing too. Like, and he gave everyone a chance. Like he goes to Dennis Bombie to Mel Engelstad. Like, why is he fighting Mel Engelstad in the preseason at 32 years old? Seriously? Mm. He didn't need to, yeah, but he did. And he gave him the shot, and it's just like, and he was always good for that. You know, the same thing when he fought Bonvi. He didn't need to do that, you know, but he was going to give the, and Bolton, there you go, Eric Bolton. I would say that's Probert's last great fight was the preseason fight with Bolton, you know. Yeah. And that was like 2000, that was his last year, I think, or second last year. And it's like, I it's that, yeah, yeah, I think it was the 2000, 2001 preseason. Yeah. I think. And he, and he, what, why is he fighting Eric Bolton? But he did. Like, so that's the thing. It's like, he has all these positives about it. Like, you don't need to. And I think that's the problem. And it almost becomes counterproductive just in terms of fans and message boards and stuff. When you have such diehards that he can do no wrong and he walks on water, never lost, and all this. I It almost like people start to resent him. And you start to get that probert hate almost because of these clowns. So now oh, people yeah. are going to start nitpicking. Oh yeah, well he beat lost to Nazarov. And he start, now they start finding the warts. Well, every every yeah. fighter's got yeah. warts, you know. Mm-hmm. But now they get it's almost like they're on a mission to like just totally discredit him. And then this is when this oh his jersey comes off. He's no good, or he's on coke. That's the other one, you know. Yep. Oh he, oh he, yeah. Oh go ahead, sorry. Well, oh he's only good because he was on coke. Well, he wasn't on coke for half his career. So, what are you talking about? Yeah, if anything, um, he was maybe at his best when he had a few years of sobriety in the yeah. second half of his Detroit era of ninety ninety one, when he you know had most of his legal problems behind him and he was making a commitment to staying sober. Robert was a monster. For a couple of years, ninety, ninety one, and ninety one, ninety two, he was damn near unbeatable. Yeah. Well, and the whole coke thing, and for and I might be wrong. I, you, you, well, you guys have both read the book and watched the movie. I'm assuming, and whatever. Am I up my ass? But did he not like he? Did he not say in the book he didn't play on coke? Like he played a couple <laughs> games on coke, and he said I didn't like it, so I didn't do it. Yeah. He said he did yeah. it, like you know. Did some coke right before a game, only a couple of times, and he said that was a terrible mistake because I was a mess. Yeah, the whole game I couldn't yeah. focus. So, 
while the stuff was in his system, <laughs> I'm sure in the eighties, quite a bit, he wasn't like actively high on the stuff in every game. Like some of the Probert haters try to make it sound like. That's what I mean. Right. And that's like, and then it comes yeah. down to now they're going to start nitpicking. Like I said, we're going to start picking at the warts. Oh, he was a cokehead. Oh, he came out of his Jersey. Oh, he did this. He did that. Wow, he had Coaster too. Okay, because so Coaster was there. Well, he wasn't that tough. Coaster took a lot of that stuff. You know, it's like now we're gonna start like you know we're you know picking the fly shit out of the pepper here. It's like yeah, you're reaching now. I mean, here I'm busy yapping, John. I've talked over you a couple. I'm sorry, John. What do you got to say about this? Oh man, uh, oh, well, it's all good. You don't worry about talking over me. But uh, no, I. Mean, I like what you said, like the whole, the, the fanboyism with Probert and all the people, you know, oh, he never, never lost the, you know, greatest of all, uh, I think he is the greatest of all time, but, but the people who just overstate, overhype everything or, or, or discount that, that whole second half of his career in Chicago, which I actually didn't realize we actually played more games as a Blackhawk than as a Red Wing. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Is that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. I know. But like, you can't you can't just discount like the whole ha- half of his career because you know he wasn't in his prime. You know, he, I mean, he still was very formidable. But you know, when people think of like Co- or Probert at his best, they're thinking you know, the late '80s, early '90s, Red Wings time. And and you call him a Terminator. I mean, he was pretty much unstoppable aside from you know a select handful of fights where. You know, he met his match, but but you have all that stuff, and it's like you get like you get the you get the reflex back, and I honestly never even noticed like so many people hating on him until recently. Like when I started my YouTube channel, and you know, I'd get some poker fights up, and just reading the comments about like how you know, oh, he wasn't that good. Oh, he only won because he lost his jersey. And I actually went through. Uh, my Probert uh, DVDs, and I swear, like he actually lost some fights early on because he was so caught up in trying to get his jersey off, and his arm would get stuck, and the other guy would take advantage. And that, I mean, I I wrote down the whole list of guys he beat without coming out of his jersey. And I mean, if you guys got two minutes, it'll probably take me that long to go through the list. But he beat Cox, he beat Tockett, Coolis, Stevens. McGill a couple times, Hunter, K.O. Nyland, McGuire, you times, Petit, Curran a couple times, Tenorti, Plinsky, McSorley, Kimball, Stewart, Grimson, on and on and on the list goes. Domi and Crowder in the rematches. Like, all those fights, the jersey stayed on. Like, well, we just discount those. Like, oh, they didn't happen. Like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, just because his jersey came off a couple times and he ended up, you know, winning the fight. You know, it's it's all the same stuff, you know, like we talked about with Ray. Like, there's still so much else to the story that you can't just say, oh, he only won because of that. No, he didn't only win because of that. He won because he was a very good fighter. He knew what he was doing. He had, like, if you just look at, you know, qualities of a fighter, you know, your chin, your toughness, your, how hard you hit how accurate you are, you know, your stamina, what are your attitudes about it? Like, Forward was good at all. Like, 
in my opinion, yeah. at least. Like, I think he was balanced. He could fight you any way you want, and it was good with him. He didn't, you know, it wasn't the most devastating punch ever, but he he hit the hurt, and he hurt a lot of guys. And you know, maybe he didn't have the legendary endurance of a McSorley or a Langdon. Maybe he wasn't as technical as some of those guys, but it wasn't. He didn't just stand there and, you know, throw. Like, he knew what he was doing when he dropped the gloves. And, yeah, I, I mean, like, like you said, the, the reflex against the whole fanboy Boba guys, like, it, it goes too far the other way. Like, you can't fall off the yeah. horse on the other side. Of it. Yeah, exactly. Yep. It's too, yeah, it's too ex- extreme. Yeah, it's, it's the extreme. Yeah, the extreme pro to all of a sudden the extreme anti-probert. And it's just like, yeah, okay. You know, Chris, I know I walked all over your the, the Coke thing on you there, but uh, what were your other two things, though? Bef- hey, and before, I, I, I want to bring up for those listening, I'm sure some of the Probert fanboys are raging and screaming at their dashboard right now. We say we bring this shit up saying, as well, as far as I, I'm going to speak for you two, I guess, but we're Probert fans. Like, I'm not here yeah. to shit on the legacy of Bob Probert. He's one of my favorite of all time. But I can see the warts too. It's and like I said, the truth is good enough. He was that good. Now, if someone wa- and like this idea that you know, oh, who's the go? Oh, Probert, it's not even close. Well, no, it's close. Oh, okay. You know, it, Dave Brown, Ben Wilson, Leroy. I mean, you could. There's a number of guys you could throw out there. This idea that it's not close is ridiculous because it is. You know, you have players that like. Well, Chris has a whole thread of like Grimson and all these guys saying. Dave Brown was number one, or what are different people other than Probert? Well, so you can't just dis- just discredit that. Of course, the one yeah. guy goes, "Well, Gribson says that because Probert beat him up all the time, so he's mad at him." Yeah. Like what? Like again? What what are we doing here? Like oh, he's saying that because he fought them all, you know. So, but yeah. anyway, Chris, continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. No. Um, oh God, where to begin? Um, well. I think the cause of the fanboyism. Uh, I think Bob Probert represents to a lot of people, and to an extent, me too. He's the guy who epitomizes the way things were back in the day when hockey was great, when it was glorious. It was so much fun to watch. There were so many fantastic players and fighters and there was just passion in the game and it was like a, a mini novella every game every night it was just a was a war even in the regular season not just the playoffs and Probert I think for a lot of people personifies that guy or that era no, that's actually I've never Probert. thought of it that way that's true that yeah that is yeah. that's a very good and, yes and with him yeah, and being deceased, if yeah. anything, it just made his legend grow even more. And unfortunately, some people just go a little too far with their memory of him and their opinion of him. They regard him as almost like this warrior saint that, you know, represented the best of a bygone era. And the myths then just grow in proportion along with the legend of Bob Probert. And, you know, and just the reality of Bob 
just doesn't match the myth. And unfortunately, you can't tell a lot of these people anything different. They just don't want to hear it because, you know, they missed the old game. So do I. But, you know, I'm not going to let that warp my sense of reality, you know? Yeah. Um, another Bob myth, another Probert myth was, uh, um, gosh, oh, you know, he was this super honorable guy who, yeah. oh, he followed the code. He never was dirty. He never jumped anyone. He never hit people when they were down. Those same people say that about Bob and vilify. You know, I think the most frequent targets are Dave Brown, Ty Domi, Marty McSorley. You know, when it comes to, you know, some of Bob's contemporaries, they get vilified for things. Yet those same people never seem to notice that Bob did much of those same things. And if he did, they're cool with it because it's Bob. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, uh, as far as like dirty stuff, I'm like, come on, Probert had plenty of, you know, pretty nasty things that he committed on the ice. Uh, Bob McGill headbutts with his helmet. Headbutts on (laughs) Gary Nyland and Rick Tockett, hair pulling. Yeah. Uh, Headbutt on Sandy McCarthy with yep. his helmet on. Uh, he ran goalies, a lot of goalies. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he tackled Baumgartner into the penalty box and was wailing on him when he was down. He hit uh, Greg Smith when he was down, Cam Russell when he was down, McGuire when he was being held by another player. He hit Cochran when he was down. Uh, Wendell Clark had an injured back, and Probert was wailing on his back. Uh, you know, he had sick incidents with Rouse, and he was threatening to gouge out Matt Johnson's eye with his stick once. Uh, Rob Pearson gave him a butt end and a teeth for no good reason. So Bob's got plenty of, you know, transgressions on his record. Yeah. But those people either ignore it completely or will justify what he did while vilifying other players for the exact same types of acts. Yeah. So that's a Probert myth, you know, and then some that he was, you know, this super honorable guy. And he was, you know, to a point. He did fight mostly honorably, but, oh, he went to the dark side a few times. Yep, and and it's fine. Yeah. That was part of what he did. That was part of who he was. That was the era. That was the the role he played, and he played it well. So that's pretty much uh, my my take on Probert is. And, and Darren, I can't agree with you more. There's no need for the crazy myths when the reality is just fine as it is. Yep. Holy shit! When you were descri- yep. when you were talking Probert there, I th- fuck! I thought I was watching NFL films the way you were describing this shit. <laughs> I was ready to run through this wall by the time you were done. Holy! You got the fired you up there. What? You should be a narrator. Uh, it, you know what? It, really, it, it, it hits home with me. The whole Probert represents a bygone era. Yeah. You know what? Yes, to to a point, I, I firmly believe that. You know, I miss hockey of the 80s and 90s especially Bob was just one of the several guys that best 
personified that era, and, you know, I, I miss it. I miss him. Yet at the same time, you know, these myths are a little nuts. And some of the Detroit fanatics out there need to kind of wake up and smell the coffee a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. John, what are your what are your thoughts on the whole Probert thing? Oh man, I think I think Chris got every moment I I thought of when uh in talking about Probert crossing a line or or getting dirty with guys because I, I mean even the if if a guy came up to me and said yeah you know Probert was an honorable warrior he, you know he followed the code you never you never did dirty stuff like those other guys I think I'd just laugh at him and oh wait you serious like of course like he did a bunch of stuff I. I think Colbert had more run-ins with goalies than any other tough guy, any other player that I could think of. Like, he ran Riendo, uh, Doug Keynes. Like, he, yeah. he did a bunch of dirty stuff. I remember he mugged uh, Forsberg in the playoffs. I mean, Forsberg probably had a common. I, I'm not on Forsberg's side. I kind of wish Colbert had just taken him right out of the game. But, <laughs> like, no, he he was plenty dirty. And he, he crossed whatever line there is plenty of times and went after guys who didn't want to fight he yeah he could get dirty with his stick with his elbow like yeah any idea that he he was above all that and that was only other guys who did that that's just like you said it doesn't it's not reality and the reality is he was an enforcer and his job was to intimidate his job was to stand up for his guys and sometimes you gotta cross the line to do that and that's what made that's what made him good at his job and you know, there's no, there's no shame in that. That doesn't make him any less of a, you know. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't hurt his legacy at all. I always laugh at the whole McGuire thing. That whole thing happened because of Probert. Probert ran oh, Buffalo's yeah. goalie the f- period before that. Yep. That's why McGuire went that and did it. Really, yeah. It was uh, yeah. Tom Barrasso. Yeah. Tom Barrasso got run by Probert. Yeah. And later in the game. Kevin McGuire ran Greg Stefan, yeah, the Detroit goalie, and that just caused a big, crazy line brawl yeah. to erupt. And the thing and, was, uh, is the only reason McGuire, called. yeah, and the only reason McGuire went after Eiserman is because Eiserman went by him and was mouthing off. Was, yeah, well, no, Eiserman went after him. Yeah, that's Eiserman what I mean. Had his yeah. gloves off. Eiserman had his gloves off and charged into McGuire. So, what is McGuire to do? Exactly. You know, but, but I laugh because, of course, everybody talks like, oh, McGuire created this whole thing, and Probert just finished it. It's like, no, Probert started that whole thing. Like, Probert was actually the reason Eiserman got into that fight, if you want to do the domino effect, because I'm pretty sure Kevin McGuire is not going to run Greg Stefan if Probert doesn't hit Barrasso the period before. So it's like the domino effect of things that are happening here. But I just laugh how McGuire gets... Because if you don't, if you just see that clip, well, then yeah, that looks like McGuire started this whole thing. But no, there was a, you know, I would say this, these ass kickings just don't fall out of the sky. Shit just doesn't happen for no reason. No, it was uh, there was there was plenty of reason there. But no, I like oh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, there was a little cause and effect with that yeah. incident with uh, the Sabers and Wings, to be sure. Um, you know what, just real quick, because it just triggered a, a memory with Iserman uh, going after McGuire. I remember reading a Sports Illustrated article 
someone different. Louis DeBrusque, of all guys, was in this article. And he talked about how Daryl Sador came after him. And DeBrusque took it easy on him because Sador isn't really a fighter. And DeBrusque said that his coach at the time, or uh, maybe it was, no, it was his teammate. I, you know, I'm not sure. I think it was his coach, Craig McCavish gave DeBrusque a lot of shit after the game. He said, hey, a guy comes after you, you kick his ass. Just because he's not a fighter like you, don't let him off the hook. He said, look, do you think a skill guy would hesitate to dance around you with a puck and score a goal? He's abusing you his way. You abuse guys your way. You're a physical guy. You're a fighter. If someone comes after you, you show them what's what. You don't let them off the hook. That's the whole philosophy, I think, but, you know, behind the Iserman-McGuire incident. Yeah. Look, Iserman came after him, so he kind of got what was coming to him by doing that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good way to put it. No, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and just to, we'll just end this on the Probert thing, but, and you brought it up too, I think a lot of it with his death, you know, that 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 raises the the profile even more, I think, or the myth or whatever you want to call it. But I always say it's such a, you know, well, not only obviously for his family and his loved ones and everybody, him dying so young, you know, um, but it's just, you know, from a selfish standpoint, as a fight fan standpoint, Especially now with all these podcasts and everything out out now, how great would it be to hear Bob Probert on a podcast telling stories? Oh, Fuck, yeah. you know, oh. just what you missed out on, like you know, as fight fans. I mean, yeah, I mean, his book was very open and the mood and all that. Without a doubt, he didn't hold back in his book. I was actually surprised how actually quite open he was. But it was, um, but just to have not even like with the coach or all that, but just like. The inside fight stories, like hear him talk about the McGuire thing, and and you know, like be the fight, like have a like I would love to sit de- like to sit down and with Probert and like talk about the McGuire stuff and the you what was it like with the Ewan knockout and to come back from that and the whole like get the real lowdown on the Crowder shit and all that like uh and just all right talk about his junior stuff. That's the other thing, Probert. Like for playing junior, what is there like three Probert junior fights on video? Like, there's nothing, yeah. you know? I mean, oh, just to go back and talk to him in junior, playing against all those guys in the mid-80 or early-80 OHL, which is crazy, you know? And just, like, oh, there's so many stories that you'll, that are, well, that'll never be told now. That it's just, man, what a shame, you know? From on a, But, um, was, yeah, so was that, was that it on your Probert ranting? Their NFL films? I guess it is. I guess it is. You know, I covered the myth that, uh, you know, people trying to undercut Bob. I think we addressed those pretty good. The whole yeah. jersey losing and the, oh, he was on drugs. That's why he was effective. And I think we got the other side of the coin, too, pretty good, where a lot of Detroit people are kind of, you know, just blowing it all out of proportion you know, regarding uh, his one-loss record and the way he conducted himself on the ice and things like that. And, you know, there's some Detroit fans 
who basically say, well, you're not a Red Wings fan, so you don't know any better. Stay in your lane. You don't really know this stuff. Well, I just say, piss off. Yes, I do. I know plenty of this stuff because, you know what, I call me a keen observer of the game for many decades, and, uh, you know, I'm a fan of all these tough guys, and Bob included, and, you know, I try to call it right down the middle, straight and narrow. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I try to be reality-based, and that's what I am. And, uh, you know, no, maybe I never did meet Bob back in the 80s when he played there. But I know plenty about the guy because I've seen all his fights. I've read everything about him. I've talked to other players about him. And, uh, you know, take it or leave it. And, uh, you know, but you're not going to undercut what I say because you think you know better because, oh, I'm a Detroit guy. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I guess that's my last yeah. parting shot. No, I I uh, agree. I agree. Yeah, um, John, I want to bring up with you. We're going to start with you on this, and this is. Uh, I mean, we're winding up here. We'll, uh, you know, I'm actually going through the list. I think we pretty much covered everything. But the one thing I do want to bring up is, of course, oh, everyone's favorite, Donald Brashear. I have to bring up Donald Brashear and George Larocque to a big extent as well, but more Brashear than Larocque. When someone says, or on the board, which is a big thing, oh, Brashear only hugged, he was never any good, I wouldn't even have him in my top 100. <laughs> and I've seen that. <laughs> oh, you guys saying he's in the top 10, what are you, you guys are nuts. He sucked. What do you say? What's your take on Donald Brashear? That's John's opinion. If someone, if someone said Donald Brashear is in top 100 all time and that he sucked as a fighter, I would, I would ask him if he knew who Donald Bashir was, like, I think you might be confusing him with a number of other guys, because, like, you watch Bashir stuff, and who hasn't seen a lot of his fights? Like, basically, by the time he got to Vancouver, all the way through, like, up to his Washington days, in, like, the mid-2000s, late-2000s, like, the guy lost, what, like, a handful of times? Pretty much. I think you could count them all out. Like he, I think McGladden got him once. Peters got him. Um, Doug Duell kind of had a little flash win against him in that one lockout year. Uh, yeah. Not many. You know, not many. I mean, those like when he went to Philly, like he did not lose many fights. And look, I, I'm not a Brashear fan. I never really liked his style. I didn't like. The, the cockiness he kind of had while understanding that, that that's part of the role. Like, he's there to be a jerk. And yep. he fit those things pretty well. But, like, no, like, as far as his fighting acumen, like, he was second to none for like a decade or so. And, you know, this whole, all he did was talk. Well, no one scores fights based on how well you're holding the other guy. It's about how, it's about punching. How many punches are you landing? How well are you landing? And just go through his, like, you go through the whole list. Like, the amount of guys he caught, he dropped Jim McKenzie, knocked Cam Russell out, uh, caught Poshek, becomes Pete, uh, Bolton, Waugh, 
Like he, I mean, there's so many guys, and those are just guys he dropped. But I mean, just the list of guys he clearly beat to me is it's phenomenal. It really is. I mean, he fought yeah. elite heavyweight. Like a, he fought a bunch of guys. It's who? It's a who's who of everybody. Yeah, yeah. Lamont Wong or Goddard, you know, Born fought so many of these guys over a bunch of times. Fought Pete. Fought Simon. Fought. Purinton, fought McCarthy a bunch, Langdon, Domi, Holbert. Like, it, it, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And how many of those fights did he clearly lose? Not many. Nope. How many did he clearly win? Well, he clearly won a bunch. And, you know, when you have that kind of run, that kind of dominant run. And Lalak, it's much the same story. I mean, a lot of what you say, what I just said about Bashir. Could say the same thing about Lilac, exchange a few names or whatever. But no, it's just you look at the video, you look at what actually happened, and it you know, it paints a very clear picture of a guy who just fought a lot, fought a lot of very tough guys, he didn't lose much, and he sure won a lot. And you might not like his style, you might not like Lilac's style. And that's fair. They both kind of had that. They'd get in close. They'd tie up the other guy's dominant hand. Then they'd kind of, you know, jerk him around, get free, get the other guy off balance, and then let loose with, with the left. Well, maybe you don't like it, but it was very effective. So if yeah. it's working, why is the onus on them to change it? It's the onus is on the other guy to stop it. And, you know, too many guys couldn't, whether they didn't have the strength to do it or couldn't figure out another way around it or whatever, you know, that's, to me, that's, that's not what we're talking about. That's beside the point, you know, style may, they make fights entertaining or not, but it doesn't reflect how well you're fighting. You know what I mean? Like Bashir's ability, I mean, it, it goes far beyond whether the fights look good or not. And like, I understand the hate. There were, you know, no shortage of moments of his that, you know, I don't think reflect that great on him. You know, I think uh, uh, the one, in, the couple instances in the playoffs, he had, had a weird thing with Dingman in 2004 it was, and then the year before against Domi, I I, I might get heat for this because he's, you know, he's giving it to Domi real good and then he just, he bails. To me, he lets go. He goes to the ice. As much as he's winning that fight up to that point, I, I can't give him a win for that. And, you know, he, I think he did that against Parker, too. And you know, there are a couple other moments that, you know, yeah, you know, you don't really like as a fight fan. And you definitely can – it's never used as fuel to hate on him more. But it doesn't take away from how good he was. Like, you can – you can use that to dislike him. You can use that to, you know, maybe say he wasn't the most stand-up guy. He wasn't the most honorable guy. He he fought dirty. He he took dives when things weren't going his way. And to be fair, like he wasn't the only guy who ever did that. I, I've seen other guys do it too. But now for for his run from like Vancouver to Washington, I mean, he was. I I don't know if you could find another guy at that time who was as dominant, as good as he was. And 
I can say all that, and I can still dislike it. <laughs> all right. Possible. You just have to. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. You just have to put your personal feelings aside and just yeah. judge things accordingly. Exactly. That's what I. That's what I always tell people with these top ten. Oh, you're nuts. Well, I don't like British here. I can't stand them. But I mean, goddamn. I mean, seriously. I mean, to anybody to sit there and say he sucked. Well, you're you're an idiot, uh, or you're just yeah. you're either trolling, trying to start something because he didn't suck. Now his fight style might be boring or whatever. Okay, I mean, I get it. Was he friggin' John Morasty? Well, no, but I, I get it. That's fine. But it's. It it doesn't take away from the results, like you said, right? And it's just the proof's yeah. in the pudding. No. Hate to hate to tell you. And then when they try to discredit again, goes back to everyone has warts, right? They all have warts. Yeah, he had issues, but like when they try to discredit him, oh, they put up the fight with like when he was with Montreal. It's like, oh, well, okay, yeah. well, that's not really, you know, you now you're taken from his rookie year in the NHL, and it's like, okay, no, I go on for. 12 years after that and find something you're not gonna yeah. you know but chris i'm talking over yeah. here what do you got to say about brashear <laughs> yeah much of the same stuff i don't like the guy either <laughs> but his uh the results are undeniable um you know what he definitely had a strong defense first philosophy with his fighting and Maybe it's not the most exciting style, but it was effective. You know, the guy had such incredible power in his arms and his upper body, and he could control opponents like nobody else. Yeah. Uh, Granted, here and there, he did hug and smother some opponents rather than swing, but nowhere near every fight like the myth makers are trying to say. And... As for the people that say, ah, oh, he sucked and it was terrible, they seem to judge him on just a handful of fights. You know, the the Probert fight in 93-94 and the Koser fight in 94-95. And that's it. They seem to somehow have missed the rest of his career. Uh, you know, yes, he did have some bad moments that reflected badly on him. Um, in 2000, I remember... He did hug Parker to death. Yet in the same game, he had no problem going toe-to-toe with Greg DeVries. You know, so that didn't reflect too well on him. Um, I remember in Philly, he turned down Yablonski. Yeah. And was letting Todd Fedorik do all the fighting for the Flyers that night. I was like, dude, Todd just came back from a broken face. You know, you don't want him fighting an animal like Yablonski. Like, come on, Donald, you got to do your job in that case. Uh, you already mentioned, John, the bailout against Domi in the 3 playoffs, where, you know, he was actually doing better than Domi in that fight. But as soon as Ty wound up to throw a bomb at him, he fell to his knees and covered up. So, yes, there are some things don't reflect well on him and make him unlikable. And yeah, the, the cockiness and the hand wiping rubs a lot of people the wrong way, me included. But the undeniable thing is the tons of huge victories and strong showing that the guy showed for like 90% of his career. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. he, he TKO Domi in the 95 preseason. 
you know, that's happened like four other times in Domi's career. Uh, you know, he beat Matt Johnson and Ray. He dropped McKenzie. That's another rare event. Uh, my God, the multiple wins over McSorley. Um, Cairns, Bonvi, Chris Murray, uh, Domi beat multiple times. KO'd Cam Russell, Paul Cruz, Rocky Thompson, Peter Morrell, Patrick Cote, Postcheck, Probert, Belak, Cummins, Parker. Oh, let me take a break. Whew. Andre Ruaha, Stephen Pete, McCarthy. My God, the hammering he put on him. Unbelievable. Uh, Vandenbush, Purinton, Oliva, Nazarov, McCarty, Reed Lowe, Langdon, Bolton, Marshall, Scott Stevens, Goddard, Bugard, Colton Orr, many times. Uh, Jamie Allison, Andrew Peters, Peros, Neal, Sean Thornton, Chris Barch, Brookbank, Shelley, Riley Cote, Matt Carker. My God. And then all the madness that he took part in in the uh, Quebec League. Yeah. yeah. Ridiculous. Well, and this, this is in response to some fool out there who said he never fought heavyweight. What fucking drugs are you on? Exactly. Look at that list. That's unbelievable. Well, that's why we said and, my, my respect for Brashear went up when the, when the lockout happened in 0405. Motherfucker went to the LNAH. Like, yeah, yeah. well, the rest of them all went to Sweden and Switzerland or didn't play or, you know, and, you know, Brashear goes to the zoo and fights 19 times. It's like, yeah. like he didn't have a target on his back. Like those guys all wanted to fight him, you know, and that was 19 when he said yes. I mean, he turned down a hundred others, you know, and it was like for him to yeah, go yeah. there was insane. Like, I couldn't believe he did that, you know, and then he went back later on and of course, and yeah, I mean... I mean, well, I think, and sure I always say, for him. what's that? It sure as hell worked for him. If anything, Jesus, going into the fire of the, the Quebec League there just tempered him into steel and made him even tougher. Yeah. You know, he came back to the NHL and he was, you know, crushing guys even more. Yeah. You know, as a Washington capital. Yeah. You know, bottom line yeah. is from 96 to like 2009, he was consistently a top five guy at the very least. And he was probably yeah. number one or the champ for, I don't know, four or five of those seasons. No yeah. one had longevity that he did at that level. No one else. No. No, they didn't. No. So for anybody to say that, well, then, oh, he threw, he just throws new geese. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I mean, I've had guys. Yeah. Would tell you something different. yeah. Well, Sandy, I was gonna say he broke McCarthy's helmet. Go watch for those listening. Brashear, Sandy McCarthy, when McCarthy's with the Rangers, he breaks McCarthy's helmet in half. So, yeah, I don't think those are noogies. And I've had guys on my show say, uh, "No, he hit hard." And they said it, the thing with him is he was so strong, right? And he could put he could put you where he wanted to put you, and he could move you around, and there really wasn't much you could do about it. And he was so strong and he would, that's the first thing he would do is control you, kind of shake you around, like almost like you were a little kid and then he'd start. So yeah, it's like, yeah, it was a style great. Well, probably not for a viewer, but it was clearly effective for him. But another thing I wanted to touch on where it added fuel to this shitting on Brashear thing 
is the Colt Nor interview from Fight Stories. The video oh, clip yeah. that's been going around, Tyler and those guys, Fight Stories, I, I missed that podcast. That was a good show, Tyler, and they did a good job. Um, but when they had Colt Nor on, and Colt Nor talks about Brashear jumping him at the end of his shift, I don't recall no. this ever happening. I don't know what's going on with this. And I, I don't, I hate to call Colton or a liar, but I think yeah. he's, his, uh, his recollection of things happening are off. Yeah. I think we, uh, our friend Rob on, uh, on the fight pages very nicely put up a link to all six of their fights. Yes. And in none of them was there any jumping at the end of a shift. In fact, I think four or five out of the six fights happened at, at a face-off. Yeah. So it's about as even, Steven, a start as you can get between the two guys. Unfortunately, you know, hey, I like Colton Moore. Don't like Brashear too much. But it's all there to see. Brashear, unfortunately, for Orr, pounded him pretty good in most of the fights. So I hate to say it, but the case of sour grapes on Colton Orr's part when he's talking about Brashear, he's just kind of fabricating something that plainly didn't happen. Sorry to say. There you have it, folks. And that and there and that's the thing. And it's like shit, dude. Uh, you know, you can well Colton said, Well, he did, but here's the video proof of like I said, I think sometimes the history is revisionist and uh People like to tell some stories. Again, I'm not going to flat out say Colt Nor is a liar or anything like that, but I think he might I, I be. Did. He might be. Well, you did, but I think he might be. Maybe he's mixing it up with someone else. But uh, and I mean, I'm surely. Yeah. And I've talked to guys that legit hate Brashear that played against them. They don't like him, and it's like they're going to take shots at him when they can. And maybe that's what Orr was doing. I mean, whatever. But as Rob did in the in the group there. Laid out all the video, all six videos, and I don't. None of it matches jives with what Orr is saying. So, eh, you know, yeah. But Colton said they keep just going back to that, and it's like, well, he can say whatever he wants. Here's the video proof right there. I actually will say Rob has gone to great lengths to really take the piss out of a lot of people on those boards. I was very impressed oh, yeah. actually with his uh, his investigative and, and his time and his commitment to putting up the video to. Uh, to shoot down some of these things. In fact, I actually have been talking to Robin. I'm going to get him on the show here uh, when he gets some time because I'd like to have him on because uh, I was like, oh, look at this character. Robin's one of the good ones, that's for sure. Yeah, well, he's certainly yeah. taken it out of him, that's for sure. Like, they'll they'll say a few things. and Yeah, and there it goes back to what we were saying before, right? He'll put up the video that's, like, completely against what they're saying. It's like, well, I don't have to, I'm not watching that. Well... Okay, but it's completely again. Again, you don't have to watch it, but it, it obviously shows that you're full of shit because it's like, yeah, yeah. But um, don't need to say anything further. Yeah, debate. Yeah, well, it's the evidence. video. Yeah. No, I don't want no evidence. Exactly. The video is uh, the video. The video will set you free. Yeah, exactly. But. Um, yeah. Boys, I think we've uh, we've we've bashed away at a bunch of myths here. I mean, you, I think we could I could literally we could literally do like ten episodes if we really started because I think there's a, I have a couple things here we didn't get to, but it's like um, just to wrap up. John, do you have anything? You got anything that I, I missed or uh, 
you know? Man, I think we covered, I think we covered everything we had. And, uh, I mean, I don't know if you're, I don't know how much you're allowed to upload for a podcast. If we keep going, we might, uh, might be a two parter. A two parter. Yeah, possibly. I, I think we're at what, two and a half? Yeah, this could be a long episode. Yeah, I might be, we might be doing parts one and two. We'll see. I don't know. But, uh, I've had some long episodes before, but it's been a while. But yeah, I know Alec, Alec and, and I and Jay, when we got drinking one time, I think we went three and a half once. So I think we'll, uh, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people tuned out after about an hour and a half, but might have to come, it'll be, it'll be on three commutes that they'll listen to this episode. But, uh, but Chris, you got anything else? No, I think we're good. That was a great time. Oh, wait, wait. Ray did not beat Domi every time. There. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a big myth on YouTube. Oh, Ray kicked Domi's ass every time. No, it's not true. There. Well, that's all I have to say. And for the new listeners out there, I will say this. If you want to go back, Chris and I break down the Ty Domi-Rob Ray feud fight by fight. And uh, on one of the episodes, off the top of my head, I don't know what episode number it is, but scroll back; it'll say Chris Domi Ray feud. Tune into that because there's a lot because Chris has a lot of good information about those fights and from that time period being in Buffalo and being around Ray and Domi and the the scene, so to speak. There's a lot of inside information there that I think uh, if you're a fan of the Domi Ray series, to definitely check out because that that's a very good episode. But uh, but hey, and I've had John on before, and uh, it won't be the last. I won't be the last for either of you guys. I hope to come back on. But uh, any, any, John, any parting words for the for the folks out there? Uh, just uh, you know, don't believe all the things you read on the internet. Listen to Darren and Chris, and <laughs> you'll be better off. Well, check out some. Vi- well, John, what's uh, what's the, what's your YouTube channel for the folks out there, and how many videos you got on that thing now? Oh man. Uh well the YouTube channel is just my name. It's John S R N E C. Um don't even bother trying to pronounce that. But uh I think I got somewhere what did it say here? I don't know if it's got the full number anywhere on this page, but yeah, I got I have thousands of videos up right now. I'm actually going through a, a Toronto Maple Leaf tape. Uh actually a guy another YouTube guy, his name's um I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's like Arctos Horse. Or whatever. Oh, oh. He had a George. Page. George. Yeah, yeah, George. He's great. Yeah. George is he great. He put the videos together and he gave me the blessing to start uploading uh, stuff on him. So, yeah, I'm just going through that. Got a ton of stuff. A lot of fights we probably talked about in this episode are on there. Got a bunch of Ray stuff, Domi stuff, uh, Coaster. So, yeah, man, if you want to check out my channel, subscribe. Uh, try to upload every day and, uh, you know, hope uh, they find something to watch, something to like. No, your 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 channel is tremendous. George's channel is tremendous as well. He has been outstanding for the hobby, especially uh, old OHL junior stuff. George is awesome. Um, but I will put yeah. the link to John's YouTube channel in the description below. Uh, Chris, final words. <laughs> don't more? stop believing. Yeah. I don't know what to say. Yeah, well, don't believe all the myths out there. You know, check out uh, YouTube channels like John and Darren and uh, Arctos Horse. And, uh, you know, 
that'll uh, put you on the right path and let you know what's uh, for real and what's not. Uh, but this was a, a blast. Had a great time. Uh, John, it's nice to make your acquaintance, even if it's only by voice. Well. Uh, love your YouTube channel and uh, definitely uh, check out your stuff pretty often. So thank you very much for your good work. And Darren, thanks for, once again, the opportunity to come on the podcast and uh, bullshit about the old days. No, I appreciate you guys taking the time out in the middle of the day. I know everyone's busy, so the fact that uh, you know you guys got on to got on here, I can I uh, definitely appreciate it. And uh, folks, for those listening, like I said, check out their guys' YouTube channels. And uh, thank you guys very much for uh, for tuning in. We'll talk to you on. I guess this will be Wednesday's episode, so I'll talk to everybody on uh, Sunday. Thanks, guys. And you people that don't like fighting, how many of you did you walk out and get a coffee while that was on?